G'day Gamer Nation, this is Simon from Australia, and I'm not allowed to listen to the Order 66 podcast. You see, the bride and I were celebrating some anniversary, I don't know what for, first date, first flower, wedding, who knows. Anyway, we're hitting the Terps pretty hard, getting nicely drunk, and I don't know how it came up, but I said that TG from Order 66 had a really sexy accent. Suffice to say, that night didn't end the way I was hoping. So now, I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. This episode of the Order 66 podcast is brought to you by author Wayne Basta. If you're a Star Wars fan looking for exciting space opera in the best tradition, look no further than the Aristea novels. They are amazing. You can find them on Amazon or head to waynebasta.com to learn more. D20 Radio, your gamers roll. Broadcast live on D20 Radio's Justin TV channel. You're listening to the Order 66 podcast. Brought to you by Gamer Nation Studios, D20 Radio, and MapsOfMastery.com. What is up, Gamer Nation? GM Chris here, and you are tuning into the Order 66 podcast. It is April 13th at 8 p.m. in the Central Standard Time Zone, and uh, GM Dave is not with us tonight. Uh, he has had some uh, prior engagements that have conflicted, but thankfully, gratefully, graciously, I am proud to welcome uh, a frequent co-host and collaborator of mine, our very own Fragmentor of the Rim, GM Phil. Dude, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here, Chris. Ever a pleasure, ever an enjoyment, ever many, many words of excitement that I am here. Oh, wow. that's effusive. <laughs> I try. He tries. He tries. But um, as cool as it is to have you here, we also have another special guest that's joining us, um, D20 Radio's own Andrew Fisher, who is back with us, what, for the second time, Andy, yes? Yep, second time. Second time, but, uh, you know... You know, second time's the best time, right? It's, you know, the first time you're always fumbling, you're not quite sure. <laughs> yeah, you know. hopefully I've loosened up. <laughs> no comment. Um, <laughs> lovely. <laughs> love, love, love See, it. we're getting off uh, yeah. to a good start here. Yeah, you know, as we do. Um, dude, welcome back. I'm so glad to have you with us. Thanks. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Uh, it's going to be fun. Oh, it's going to be good. And uh, Andy is joining us tonight to talk about Enter the Unknown, the first source book for Edge of the Empire. Um uh, of course, devoted to the Explorer, um, and that is going to be comprising the vast majority of our show. Uh, we're going to keep this show pretty pretty tight and pretty clean and kind of dig right into it, um, assuming you're comfortable with that, Phil. I mean, I don't want to step on, you know, if you've got any wild craziness you want to get out of the way, you know, just just do it now. No, 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 I'm hip, I'm with it, I can roll. Are you sure? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, then I think it's best if we start with this, because it's worth starting with. And now, Stormtrooper Hike. <laughs> Rebel Haiku. Fireworks in the sky light the faces of heroes at one with the Force. Rebel Haiku. 
Man has some, <laughs> man has some good haikus. Isn't that the second time we've had the the introduction interrupted by a volley of blaster fire? Yes, and I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, makes you pay attention. Well, with Age of Rebellion coming out, it's very fitting. You know, it, it's it's on our doorsteps. It, it's soon, soon, right, fish? Oh yeah. <laughs> As we just stare at the screen. We stare at the screen menacingly. His little icon. <laughs> right. Right, Fish. Oh. All right, well, let's get this out of the way. Hello there. What have we here? Good news. Featured podcast of the week. Um, Got to take some serious time to uh, give a give a big hooray and hurrah uh, to our boys over at Punching for Justice, who have returned from a very long hiatus, and they are back. Dan and Kyle um, with episode twenty, great episode where they actually delve into the traps and magic gadget guides. Uh, very awesome. If you are a fan of third edition mutants masterminds, you're going to love the show. Um, they get uh, kind of crazy as usual, and it, it's good to hear them. It's good to hear them. They were off the air for a couple months, and it seems like they're back in full swing, so I'm really glad they're back. Um, so, Punching for Justice, great episode, Gamer Nation. Go listen to it. And you can find more awesome podcasts about various role-playing games, board games, minis, and other cool, geeky stuff at www.d20radio.com. And here we are at the start of what is considered to be con season, and we just had the First ever, first annual Gamer Nation Con, and we're keeping that game fairs rolling with the Origins Game Fair coming up on June 11th to 15th. It's one of the flagship conventions in the United States for gaming conventions. D20 Radio will be representing, as usual, longtime D20 Radio alum Vaderson, also known as Duncan McEwen, will be running some old school Star Wars games. Check the Origins event schedule and look for them and go and play. And Vaderson will be very happy to see you folks up there. He will. I I love Duncan. I don't get to see him very much. He is awesome. Absolutely awesome. He's a good guy. Fish, do they let you out of the closet at all? I mean, to go and do anything? Do you get to go any cons aside from the big show? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Go on occasion. I went to PAX and, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, the origins, any, any, any of the, I mean, aside from, I mean, everyone goes to Gen Con, right? But, everyone. Everyone. oh yeah, absolutely. But yeah, aside from that, um, Katrina, uh, one of my coworkers, uh, went to Origins. She had a really good time. Uh, I was busy, unfortunately, but oh yeah, we've had Cat on the show before. She's awesome. Um, so very, very cool. But Phil, dude, I, I don't, you're, are you not going to make it in for the next con that we had to talk about? Are you? No, no, I had to pool all my money to make sure I get to the big show this year. Ah, uh, well, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but the next one is down your way, April 24th to 27th, only a week and only about two weeks away. Yep. ReaperCon. Oh. <laughs> Love the it. The madness that is in Louisville, Texas. Yeah, Fish, we have like, um, I don't know if you've heard of Reaper Miniatures. They do the, you know, the pewter minis. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course I've heard of Reaper. <laughs> I, 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 I said that to you. I don't want to call you out. It's like, well, Fish, you know Reaper Miniatures. Oh, yeah, but, uh, that's, that's, that's true. Okay. Uh, no, no, they I backed their Kickstarter. Oh, okay. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so, um, so obviously so you've got the giant box of stuff in the mail yet, too? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Man, that thing came in. And I'm looking at it going, where the hell am I going to put this? When the All hell am the I going to paint this? All the fantasy bad guys I could ever need. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, or or Star Wars if you get creative enough with your paint jobs. 
Um, yeah. Uh, they, uh, the, the guys at Reaper, I, they have privately, like, obviously not anything official, just the guys who just do, like, mods for fun. Um, some of them have gotten together, and they've made me some pretty awesome Star Wars mods. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I'll show you something pretty awesome. But anyway, Reaper's located where we are. They're in Denton, Texas, which is a stone's throw from, you know, the, the Metroplex of Dallas. And uh, they have their big annual convention every year. And I'm going to be running a ton of Star Wars up there, guys. I still have a few seats left in some of my games. Um, I will be running a lot of Edge of the Empire um, and also a brand new module for Age of Rebellion. Uh, the first in an episodic series I'm writing, uh, which is called Inglorious Rebels, uh, to steal uh, GM Brev's magnanimously wonderful idea. Uh, you are getting the first of those modules out that weekend. Yep, uh, and I'll be running the very first one there, uh, The Man in the Nice Uniform, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm anxious to get that on the table. It's going to be fun. Cool. Yes. Uh, anyone else who wants to, head on over to www.reapercon.com. Check it out. Sign up. Grab some table slot. Grab some table time. I can't wait to see you all. It's going to be so much fun. <laughs> and now, time for the social media plug. Of course, stay in the know by following D Twenty Radio on Facebook for news and podcast info on a daily basis from all of our various show hosts. You can also follow the GMs of the Order sixty six podcast there, as well as on Twitter. I'm at GM Chris, um, and my uh, uh, currently absent co-host is at GM Dave. You can also follow us at D Twenty Radio. Um, we post and tweet show info and announcements regularly. So if you are a social media er er er. Um, (laughs) follow us and uh, stay in the know um and while we're pimping out fish i know you've got a pretty active twitter account uh yeah i do um i'm at ethereal underscore fish um i I tweet about work on occasion and uh, a bunch of other random stuff too so you guys can come follow me and ask me questions it's he's a good dude to follow i follow i follow fish and he's 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 one of the guys i I enjoy reading his tweets so good recommendation and uh phil are you twittified I gotta get out of the twentieth century. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, you do. Oh, Come into no. the future with us. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm gonna have to do it for Gen Con because I know that a lot of the D20 stuff gets sudden tweeted out, and uh, I don't want to miss it. So <laughs> I can start following you guys. I can start following my other co-host Fiddleback. Speaking of Fiddleback. Speaking of, yes, before we get into the actual meat of our show, we uh, of course can't leave you guys without show, uh, an excellent episode of Skill Monkey. Um, one of our more favorite segments. And so we're going to get into that right now. And in about seven minutes, we'll see you guys on the other side and we will talk Enter the Unknown. But until then, we leave you with the dulcet tones of Fiddleback. Skill Monkey! Skill checks are one of the most narratively creative elements in FFG's Star Wars system. They represent opportunities for players and GMs to work together to create the kind of stories and adventures that become epic and cinematic. At least, they can be epic and cinematic if you think creatively about the dice results. Let me show you what I mean. How good are you with a blaster? Or a rifle? Or even one of Mersan's lovely little barbecue starters? The Skill Monkey is, of course, an expert marksman across a variety of weapon types. And it's just as well that he is, because he is often in need of the sort of support that weapons like these make available. You see, Skill Monkey has been playing at a pretty rough table lately. My GM, Sam Stewart, has made it very clear that being a dab hand with weapons is going to have a significant place in his game. So the Skill Monkey loaded up on the old weapon skills like nobody's business. 
It's not a case of shoot first and ask questions later. It's more like shoot first and then keep shooting until no one is left to provide answers. We probably would enjoy what they had to say anyway. This has left Skill Monkey in something of a bind, though. By cranking up the combat skills, some of the other skills, some that folks might consider essential, have been left a bit weak. And the Skill Monkey, being the Skill Monkey, has had to come up with creative ways to compensate for that. After all, what fun is it if I'm only good in combat and have to sit out when we're doing all the fancy talking, or bending wrenches, or flying from one job to the next? Now, we all know that the ranged skill, both heavy and light, as well as the other combat skills, are very good at telling us whether or not we've hit and for how much damage. No problem there. We all seem to understand that for the most part. It's the skill monkey's contention, though, that these skills can come into play in other ways as well, because they represent more than just, did I hit and how hard? For the truly effective blaster jockey, they can represent so much more. Take, for example, weapon customization. Experienced riflemen and blaster boys know that a weapon's fit and feel in the hand are key to being able to make a good shot. It's no good drawing your weapon if you then have to fight its barrel's weight to bring it on target. Too front-heavy and you'll be too slow to gun down that bounty hunter that is chasing you for unspecified reasons. Too grip-heavy and you'll whip right past him and shoot sky. If you're lucky, you won't have a chance to regret your poorly balanced weapon when he shoots you in the head. Adding many of the customization options to your weapon of choice can change balance and weight in ways that significantly affect your ability to make bad things happen to people a long way away. Why not, as the crew's mechanical genius begins improving your weapon, make an appropriate ranged skill check to add a boost die to the process? You'll spend a few minutes explaining to him the way you like your weapon to feel in your hand. Maybe he'll take some measurements to ensure that the grip fits properly. You can take a few test draws and see how it checks out before he permanently attaches things, thus ensuring that your blaster is an extension of your arm and not some heavy lump of metal stuck on the end of it. While we're at it, let's deal with weapon maintenance. You want, if you're worth your salt at all as a gunman, to keep your weapon working as well as possible at all times. Making a successful range skill check in your downtime could, if your GM allows it, mean that the next time your weapon would suffer some sort of disadvantage in the field due to a breakdown or other effect, you can reduce or eliminate the first of these to happen. Routine maintenance pays off in the long run when your trusty DL-44 doesn't drop its power pack on the floor in the middle of a firefight. We all know that the presence of a blaster rifle or similar weapon often ensures a polite conversation. Sometimes you don't even have to draw your weapon. Just the notion that a competent gunman is in the room is all it takes to motivate people to see things your crew's way. Subtle clues alert most folks that you aren't to be messed with. In short, if you look like you know what you're doing with a weapon, people will often assume you actually do. The extent to which this helps with negotiations or intimidation checks, for instance, can be determined by a relatively easy ranged skill check. Let them see the blaster rifle slung across your back or the disruptor pistol on your hip. They'll definitely notice, and it will certainly color their attitude towards you and your crew. So toss the face of your group a boost die in the right situation and relax as your interactions with those folks smooth right out. GM should note, though, in some places in the galaxy and with certain people, this could be a very bad idea indeed, and someone trying it could accidentally add setback instead. Now for doctoring. Yes, I said doctoring. Don't look at me like that. 
I want you to picture a situation where you have a man who is badly injured and in need of urgent medical attention. Stim packs aren't going to cut it, either because he's hit his limit for the day or the injuries are just too serious. The doc needs to operate and operate now, but horror of horrors, he's out of anesthetics and sedatives. The patient is going to have to be operated on while he's wide awake. Except not. Because you know that with a carefully controlled stun blast, you can render the patient unconscious. A quick apology and an appropriate difficulty range check and the doctor can go right ahead and do what needs to be done. It's not ideal, and certainly not a guarantee, but it's better than nothing in a pinch. Need to identify what weapons that group of oncoming troublemakers are carrying? Sure, you could use knowledge warfare if they are an organized military group, but it's far more likely on the fringe that you're dealing with a disorganized group with no specific standard loadout. Make the appropriate range skill check and you might just be familiar enough with your chosen class of weapons to identify who is carrying the most dangerous boomstick and what to do about it. Having a little confab with an old timer from the Clone Wars? Show off your knowledge of weapons and their uses with a quick ranged check. Maybe he'll be impressed enough to take you into his confidence and share some of his expertise with you. You could stand to learn a thing or two, after all. There are plenty of other ways to make those ranged skills do double duty for you. These are just a few suggestions. Heck, it can work with almost any of the combat skills if you think creatively and let your imagination go. Sure, you'll have to talk with your GM in most cases to agree on what is appropriate and what the potential effects of using them could be, but it's a lot better than simply sitting on the sidelines until the blaster bolts start flying. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to get back to Sam's table and work out just how I can reprogram a computer terminal in three shots or less. I'm sure it can be done, but he keeps shaking his head at me every time I suggest something. That boy's got a lot to learn. <laughs> Fantastic, Fitty. I love that bit. It's a good bit. I think, I don't think enough people appreciate the alternate uses for combat skills. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot that can be done with a skill of the, like that other than just rolling to see if you blast somebody as yeah. Fiddy just expounded upon. Yes. Um, had a Skype game not too long ago, uh, just towards the end of last year, um, where uh, running through my, uh, uh, my, my pirate module. <laughs> um, uh, the, it's the, a great module. Oh, thank you. Um, Dead Man's Hand. And it was... Um, uh, at one point, uh, it, so Phil, you've played it. There's the scene where the heroes are, are you know, are Indiana Jones style heroes who really could have benefited from this book. I'm just throwing that out there that we're going to be talking about. Um, uh, seeing as how they're archaeologists, uh, they um, uh, they're intimidating their their Twi'lek nemesis, uh, who's actually named Belosh. And uh, <laughs> I loved that. <laughs> um, and uh, it was uh, one of the one of the pistol monkeys was like, I want to intimidate him with, you know, when he, oh, can I use my range light skill? I wanted to like do like a flourishing, you know, and he like whip my pistol out and you know toilet around my finger 16 times and you know lightning fast and then shove it back into the holster and try and, you know, you know, tell, get him to back off. And I was like, I thought it was a brilliant suggestion. And uh, yeah, not, not a lot of people just think about what you can do with those skills. So. Good bit. And the system works in such a way that you don't have to always match it up with the skill and the uh, uh, normally attributed attribute. You could easily have done that with like presence and range light. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Or you could like pair it with uh, intellect and do like a uh, knowledge 
of uh, weapons or whatever oh, related yeah. weapons. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, the characteristic in parentheses is more of a guideline. <laughs> it's like it's it's a guideline, and yes, um, love it. So okay, then that leads me. And that now remembering about all that gets me into thinking about what we're going to talk about tonight. So. The Order 66 podcast is is proud to welcome back D20 Radio's own Andrew Fisher. Um, Andy first joined us last September when we discussed the release of the Age of the Rebellion beta book. Um, and, and we learned lots of stuff from you. Uh, um, yeah, about the book, but also the really, really important questions like what kind of pie you like the best. Mm, pie. And I'm, I'm trying to remember. Mm. I'm trying to remember. What, what, you went for... Did you go for a, it wasn't no pecan pie was was Sam's. That's definitely Sam. That's Sam Sam's. is pecan pie through and through. Okay, remind me, what was your favorite pie? I don't remember what I answered back then. So uh I, th- I think <laughs> I think it was like chocolate cream or something like that. Well, what I normally get when we go out for pie day, they have this peanut butter pie. Oh, that that's right. Yes, that's right. Yes. yes, it was. It was the peanut butter pie. That's the answer you gave us. It is is heart attack in a slice, but it is amazing. Oh. That's that's absolutely Why is it deep fried too? <laughs> it might as well be. It's it's Minnesota, not Texas. Um, oh, true, true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we, we learned we learned you like peanut butter pie. Um, we also learned that you're a pretty cool guy, and we kind of wanted to get you back on the show uh, to delve deep into the first source book for Edge of the Empire: Enter the Unknown. And we've been sitting on this for a while, you know, waiting for for really to have the players get some time to chew on it. Um, and you know, it was released earlier this year, and it really gave explorers the love they deserve. And so now that our players have had the chance to really digest it uh, and chew on it, we wanted to bring out the chef himself. So, Fish, again, welcome back to the show, sir. Uh, thanks. Yeah, I, only one of the chefs, though. We have uh, a lot of people work to make this book. So. Okay, okay. The the head chef or the sous chef or whatever yeah, you yeah. want. Okay, f- fair enough. I don't, actually, I, don't, I don't actually know kitchen rolls enough to extend this analogy. <laughs> Well, um, then let's leave the kitchen analogy and go into like a, a, a more ex- exploration analogy. Because tonight, we are going to be traveling through the outer reaches of this book. We will be asking you our own questions about it, as well as several questions from our listeners. So lock in those astrogation coordinates, Gamer Nation. Rub your hand on your stubbly chin as you give me the idol and I give you the whip. And strap in as we prepare to make the jump into Enter the Unknown tonight. So, Phil, you've not spoken with Andy before. This is your first time meeting him. Correct. So why don't you take us away with the obligatories? Absolutely. So, Andy, this is your second time on the show, and the Gamer Nation and the listeners have come to know you pretty well the last time you were on, at least those folks who had joined us back then. But we have new listeners now, or those who just have horrible memories. And so I want to ask you to remind us of who you are, and what do you do? Yeah, totally. Um, I am uh, Andrew Fisher, and uh, I'm one of the uh, RPG developers at Fantasy Flight Games. Um, I've been working there for about three years now. Um, we're in charge of uh, seeing the books from concept to completion. We manage the writers, uh, you know, um, 
we lay out the books. We see everything from start to finish. Um, I've been working on the Warhammer 40k role-playing game, and now for the last couple of years, I've been working on the Star Wars role-playing game. Um, I helped design Edge of the Empire. I've done some supplements for Edge, and I was the lead developer on the uh, upcoming Age of Rebellion. So. A bunch of the items that we are definitely looking forward to. <laughs> With bated oh, breath and anticipation. Yes. Absolutely. As you can tell, Phil's really excited. <laughs> I can't wait. It's gonna be Distur- great. Disturbingly so. <laughs> <laughs> you should meet him in person. He gets he gets uh, he gets you know his big man hands. He gets kind of gropy. It's it's a little it's, it's, it's a little disturbing. Um. <laughs> Leave me alone. I'm just happy. <laughs> <laughs> be happy. Happy's good. Yes. Um. <laughs> So, all right, let, let's let's dig into this book itself, and I'm 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 holding it right now. I'm actually holding and, and rubbing my hands across "Enter the Unknown," um, you know, a source book for explorers. And really wanted to start off, uh, Fish, with some general questions on, on production and overall design uh, that we had, and then uh, you know, one or two that our listeners uh, dropped in as well. Um, and this is really going to kind of lead us into the meat of the show, actually, with our very first listener question, which comes from longtime community member Rikoshi. Um, and he wanted to ask this. He said, you know, what what led to the decision to lead with the Explorer career? I mean, obviously a more nuanced support role rather than one of the more iconic Star Wars roles such as Bounty Hunter or Smuggler. Was it a, a conscious decision to to get people to consider different options for a less obvious role? Or, or did the ideas for an expanded Explorer career simply come together more fully before other careers did? Um, I mean, our decision for how, what order we release products in is uh, pretty complex, actually. Um, sales, management, marketing, development, you know, they all factor into the final decision. So I can't, like, give you one answer for why specifically this one first. Um, there isn't, you know, there wasn't some meeting where we sat down and said, you know, explore must be first. But um, <laughs> one thing we do try to do is is we're trying to space out the different careers nicely so that you get a nice variety. You know, you don't see all of the, you know, combat monsters up front or like clumped together or anything. You know, we're trying to uh, make each one, make sure the themes are nice and uh, different uh, so that customers get that variety. Nice. Um, and so... With that, I mean, as you guys are planning it out, I know a lot goes into the order of the books, but in terms of the inspiration for this particular book itself, I mean, what fed into that? Because to me, like, I read this, man, it seems to be all about Indiana Jones and Alan Quatermain, and that's a really good thing, but where were your heads when you were making this? Because there were some very distinct design choices that fed into this development, man. I mean, where where were your heads? <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Um Actually, when we very first started development on this book, um, a bunch of us involved uh, in the product sat down and uh, we had a kind of a meeting about the themes we wanted to explore in this product. And, you know, Zoe, uh, Zoe uh, our, art, our art coordinator, you know, asked, you know, what do you see as the, the main themes behind this? And we talked about, you know, we actually did talk about Indiana Jones, Ellen Quartermain, that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, it helps tie... Uh, uh, consistency in the art, consistency in the design. If you kind of point can point to some specific things, so you hit the nail right on the head. Um, we definitely had them in mind as we were making this book. Yeah, there's a lot of wide-brimmed hats in this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listen, at, at the same time we're developing this, I was watching, you know, Cad Bane in the Clone Wars, oh, and yeah. I love that hat. 
It's a good hat. Yeah. It it is a very good hat. Um <laughs> dude. Okay, so you talk about you talk about uh Zoe. Um skipping ahead a bit. Like like the art in this book is just gorgeous. Um did you have a favorite piece of art that Zoe and company uh, cobbled into the book? Anything that's really struck you? Oh, uh, yeah. So if you'll uh, indulge me here, I actually, oh, yeah. uh, it isn't a single piece of art, but uh, we kind of tried to work in a ongoing narrative in a few pieces of the art throughout the book. Uh-huh. Um, okay. And, and I think this is my favorite thing is uh, I kind of came to Zoe with the idea and uh you know, at first she kind of gave me this look, but uh, she totally embraced it, and it, it, I think it turned out pretty cool. Um, so we follow a uh, holocron through the hands of each explorer specialization, and we ended up having to leave one out, but uh, we hit everybody else. Uh, so if you look on page six of the book, you can see an archaeologist and a big game hunter uh, kind of uh, fighting this rancor in this temple. Yeah. And... Uh, and then we get to uh, page 17, and you can, you can see the archaeologist uh, finding the holocron and, like, recovering it. The big game hunter, we don't know what happened. Uh, he might have, uh, the rancor might have been distracted chewing on the big game hunter. We'll never know. Um, <laughs> and then you, you go to page 26, and we have, uh, this one's a little harder, but there is a driver helping the archaeologist escape some sort of mystery pursuers through a city um, as she tries to get this holocron to, you know, whoever she's going to sell it to. Uh, and then on page 50, we have an archaeologist uh, arguing with a trader over the price of the holocron. Um, and then finally on page 89, we see a fringer, a, uh, presumably a force-sensitive child, finding the holocron in some random junk shop. You know, uh, <laughs> So we, we worked that into the art for people who are really observant. I, I wondered about that. I did, because I'm like, this is the same holocron over and over again. Dude, I just now noticed that I'm going through right now. That's brilliant. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Absolutely. I didn't notice. It. I did not notice that it, it tied in with each individual career. I mean, I yeah, saw it, that it fit, but I, I didn't put the connection together that you had run through all six of these specializations. Well, we did miss out on the scout. Originally, there was going to be a piece like framing the temple before they go in and fight the Rancor with the scout kind of showing the big game hunter and the archaeologist where it is. I don't remember why that one didn't make it into the book, but unfortunately, we missed out on that one. But all the other specializations made it, so. Cool. Utterly cool. So, okay, so, so that's, your, your, that's your favorite artwork from the book. Um, and this might be a little preemptive, but... Let's talk about your favorite part of the book itself. Um, what's the most? What's the favorite thing that you found in Enter the Unknown? Is it a ship? Is it a piece of gear? Species? Specialization? What calls to you? And what do you look at and go, "This is the part I love. This is what I think is awesome." Well, uh, I'm a rules guy at heart, uh, so I think actually my favorite thing in this book is it's the introduction of signature abilities. Um, mm. They're uh, kind of. Uh, we all worked on them together, but uh, I had a special hand in their creation, and so um, I really like them. And this is, you know, their big, their big debut. Um, we wanted to give kind of a an option to go deeper into your specialization instead of uh, having to branch out once you've kind of filled up your tree, um, and to give non force sensitive characters the spotlight in some way for a short period yeah. of time, um, and some splashy fun ability. Because they definitely uh, read like uh, force abilities too. 
Yeah, and that's kind of the feeling we wanted to give them. We want we still wanted the force to feel, you know, special, obviously, but we wanted to give these characters that big spotlight moment, your scene in the mo- in the movie that is your role playing game. And so that's how we did it with signature abilities. And so I'm very happy with how they turned out. So they're probably my favorite part of this book. I remember when the book first came out, when the first first book got when it first got announced. I should say, I'm sorry. Um, and the, just an offhand comment about the introduction of signature abilities, that created such a buzz on the forums. What are these? What will they be? What do they do? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, hopefully uh, uh, people enjoy them as much as we have. And actually, uh, Ega Theron in the chat makes a very good point. And they, another choice uh, behind making them is they make your career choice more important. More than just being a discount on certain specializations, you know, your career really matters for that late game as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent point. Um, everyone in the chat's like, exactly, exactly. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, oh, okay. So that's obviously huge. So aside, uh, and this, this this is kind of the last thing I wanted to ask in this vein and expand on it as, as we will, but in addition to obviously, you know, where, where your guys' head was, and obviously we talked about that, what were the design goals for this book? I mean, was it just, hey, let's give players more to do with explorers, or, 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 or what? What, what, what is the overarching goal that you guys wanted to give players who were getting this book? And if, if you had to tell somebody quickly, okay, this is why you should go get this. Why? Yeah, totally. Um, when we sat down to design the book, the the very first thing we do we look at is you know kind of what design holes do we see in the original game like. Uh, what functionality do we want, we want to be there that isn't yet? And so we we first make sure that we have those. And uh, beyond that, then we kind of explore the themes of the book and try to introduce new and cool stuff that adds to everything else in a, in a cool way um, that evokes the themes we want to explore in this book. Um, so that's kind of like how we approach our goals from the beginning. Um, it's kind of a balance between the two. Gotcha. And is that, I mean, this is a loaded question, but obviously this is the same philosophy I'm assuming we're going to see for the majority of the other source books as well, uh, at least the the career-specific ones? Oh, yeah, totally. For each career, we have, uh, you know, certain things that we want the career to be able to do that they can't do yet, and we're going to explore those. And then from there, we're just going to find some, you know, cool things that we think add to the career in a meaningful way. Awesome. All right, well, let's, let's, since you are a, a rules lawyer and you like those details, um, what do you say we dig into some of them? Totally. Um, uh, so, Phil, uh, you and I have had discussions about this, but, I mean, you danced a jig when you saw the new uh, the three new species in this book. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, my questions hang on those three to start with. Um <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So back so, before I knew that I would be guest hosting, I just fired off. Three he, of them he did. He did. Phil. Phil is he's like these are the three questions I have to ask um, of, of of Andy Andy Fisher. Um, but the uh, and so you you know what, buddy, you're going to get the chance to ask them in person. See, that's that's the service we provide. Um, Life is too good. It, it's just too good. So the three species that were introduced in this book: um, the Chiss, the Duros, and the Toydarians. Um, so. Kick us off, Phil. I mean, I mean, uh, pose pose your questions because I thought I felt they were some pretty good ones. Sounds good. So, uh, starting with the chiss, what, and why did you decide to include the chiss? Um, 
were there any issues with Lucasfilm regarding uh, regarding including the Chiss in this book, uh, or has Star Wars: The Old Republic kind of just opened up the Chiss to more use before Thrawn's appearance during the Old Republic? Um, yeah, so we uh, actually using the Chiss were never really a problem. Uh, Lucasfilm's been super easy to work with, and um, uh, the beauty about role playing games is that the PCs are the PCs are kind of the exception in the universe and not the rule. Sure. Um, and so that really helps, right? You know, so we can say that the Chiss are basically not found in the galaxy. You are, an, as the PC Chiss, you are an oddity. Um, and it's okay because, you know, you might be the only one, you know, besides Thrawn um, and the, the few other examples we have in the EU. But, um, you know, by opening this species up to the PCs, we're not necessarily saying, oh, they're running everywhere, you know, because it's just your group. <laughs> um, so we, we didn't actually run into many problems with including them. And as far as uh, why we chose this book, uh, we sit down and we try to plan out the entire uh, line ahead of time. And so we kind of look at what species fit where. Um, And the Chiss, we knew we wanted to include them somewhere. Um, And, you know, they are basically not seen in the galaxy. And they're very kind of loner characters. So the Explorer book felt like a really natural place for them to fit. You know, the Explorers are always off on their own. You know, they're away from the... the like centers of civilization uh, in the galaxy. And so we felt like the Chiss fit the best in this book. Awesome. Excellent. So, and that gives, and like you said, that gives us an explanation as to why the Chiss are here, why you included them in this book. Um, And that totally makes sense. Uh, You're right. It it doesn't mean that the whole Chiss civilization is now involved in everything. You're just playing a random one, a one-off well, I felt that like so much of this book is about expl. I mean, I, so much of this book is about exploration. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, but but seriously, so much of it is about is about heading out into that into the unknown areas of the galaxy, and you have you know this this strong, you know, finding secretive and hidden cultures. Um, you know, where you have got the archaeology and the exploration as a part of it. I don't know the Chiss. Um, I don't know. The Chiss is a secretive. And, yeah, and, and, it, it, it it played ball for me. It, it's it's a it's a group of it's a group of aliens that I could see a uh, a group of, of of archaeologists with their with their driver and you know and, and other explorers out there going and, and finding and discovering haphazardly accidentally. Um, I don't know. It, it 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 worked for me. Excellent. Let's move on to the next one then. Um, the Duros. So much of exploration in the Star Wars galaxy involves hyperspace. And aside from humans, Duros are the next race that comes to mind when you start talking about space travel in Star Wars. Rumored to have invented the first of the hyperdrives. Now, this isn't really the first time that we've seen the Duros in the book, though. Or at least the Fantasy Flight Games books. Because we they were introduced in the Age of Rebellion beta. So... What went into the design decision to include Doros in this book, knowing that they would also be in Age of Rebellion? Were you guys just in a conscious desire to get official stats out there for this iconic race into Edge of the Empire? Or was there an issue with production schedules and publication timing or something else? Uh, a lot of that repeat comes from kind of forward planning. Um, you know, we planned out the Edge line first. And, sure. uh, you know... As you said, the Duros were a natural fit in the Explorer book because of their history of astrogation and everything, um, you know, which a form of exploration. So, you know, they were like a must in this book. And so we 
we had this book in writing and everything. And then we also planned the age line. And, you know, looking at the Rebellion, the Juros were a natural fit there as well. And because the Age Rebellion is this core book, um, you know, it, there might be people who only buy Age Rebellion and, you know, only play that experience of Star Wars. And so we didn't want to lessen that pers- that uh, customer's experience just because we'd already put this in a different supplement. And so that's kind of why we repeated the content is to make sure that that consumer who uh, buys Age of Rebellion and wants that to be their their game experience has the experience the best experience possible. And so you know th- there are going to be a couple of repeats like that, but we make sure they're 100 percent compatible. Um, and they're pretty few and far between. So uh, hopefully it's not a problem for most fans. That totally makes sense, uh, and I can I can understand the desire to get them into this book, get them into the Age of Rebellion book. And that was kind of what I thought that 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 it was a sort of the lines not exactly planned completely separate, but you know the, the, we got the we've got the Age of Rebellion line coming up, but we've got all of those already mapped out for Edge of the Empire. Um, and it's also good to hear that there won't be too many duplicates because there are a lot of races that fans want to see. Yes, yes. There's a lot of them. There, and I'm sure that some folks would come up with some suggestions as to what should have been included in this book. And yet I think about those races and I think about the specializations that you introduced in the core rulebook, and you're right. I was first puzzled as to why Toydarians were included in this book, but then I realized that the whole trader specialization was part of the Explorer's, spe- uh, part of the explorer's uh, manifesto. Yeah. And yeah, nothing says trader like Toydarians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Watto has really uh put them in that niche. So oh, they yeah. they were a must. We you know, we, we kind of went through the movies and we looked through all the really core IP stuff and you know, Toydarians being one of them because of Watto and uh you know, we saw him and he, we're like, well, he has to go with the traitor. Uh mm-hmm. well, with the the career that has the traitor in it. And so that's that's how Toydarians en- ended up in here to uh round out our blue our blue alien species trifecta we have going here. <laughs> That's true. You do have the, all the blue aliens here. Okay. Speaking of blue aliens, I, I have to say in, in the chat room right now, Fiddleback is saying, okay, so he's asking the group who wants to run a group of Chiss Mercs working against both sides in Age of Rebellion. And, uh, you know, maybe like an advanced team to soften things up for Thrawn. And, uh, everyone's like, Oh, that's a great idea. And uh, I can see the I can see the PC character sheet now. Duty, Thrawn. Motivation, Thrawn. Thrawn. <laughs> 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 That's cool. Um, so uh, now I had my own question about uh, Toydarians, but we actually got some help with some other questions from folks throughout the Gamer Nation. Uh, first specific question concerning Toydarians comes from Happy Days. Uh, the question being, what game mechanics should we use for the Toydarians force resistance or immunity? It is something that's mentioned in the first book. Uh, for, not the first book, I'm sorry. Mentioned in the first episode that Toydarians are resistant to force tricks. They respond to money, blah, blah, blah. Was there anything that was, was introduced f- or thought about for that, for the character, for the race? Uh, yes, this has been an ongoing discussion. Um, and actually, uh, you'll notice they follow the same pattern as the Hut Crime Lord uh, profile in the Edge of the Empire core book. Um, in not having like a droid-like strict binary resistance to the Force. Um, instead, we wanted to leave Toydarians and Huts as more of a organic resistance in an in increased willpower. So you'll see that the Toydarians have that uh, 
higher mm-hmm. willpower stat to start with. And, you know, for example, the hot crime lord in the core book has a really high willpower. So, you know, those opposed checks that are going to be made against them um, are going to be a lot more difficult. Um, because, you know, while certain sources, you know, say that the resistance is very binary, other ones are a little more shaky on that. Um, and so we wanted to keep the their species uh, resistance a little more flexible than something like a droid, which obviously can't be uh, affected by, you know, mind tricks and stuff. Uh, I mean, that, be, that being said, though, I encourage GMs to uh, introduce anything they feel appropriate for the species. You know, if, if they want the Toydarian to have more resistance, they can go ahead, you know, like, um, based on what they need for the story and everything, uh, they can make a Toydarian more or less resistant to the Force. If they just want to completely uh, make them immune, that's fine, too. Um, it's a pretty easy thing to kind of play on the fly. They could upgrade the check. They could add a setback die. Any number of things. Totally. Well, being immune to influence, the influence power, doesn't mean you're immune to the force. You know what I mean? True. It's something as simple as that. I mean, as a GM, I would have no problem saying, yeah, you know what? The influence power just doesn't work on you uh, because you're a Toydarian. Um, and, and, you know, if, if, if that's the route we want to take. And it's not like, it's not like that makes that character uber powerful or anything. It's, it's, gee, you got one force power that can't be used on you. Um, I mean, so even even taking that extreme example where it's just immunity, I I don't know. I don't see that as terribly imbalancing. Yes, you're now immune to uh, you're not immune to influence, which will not save you when this speeder is dropped on your head or the lightsaber <laughs> is thrown at your head. Uh, Indeed, yeah, yeah. No, it's also a nice tool. You know, you have that player running roughshod over your content, just using force powers left and right. And, you know, you throw some droids at them, you throw a Tod at them, you throw a Tidarian at them, and suddenly that player uh, is having a lot harder time in social situations and makes them think about the game in a different way. Absolutely. So our next question from glewis2317 has a Tidarian quandary. Just curious, if my Tidarian were to take a stumble off a cliff, could he flutter down or does he fall? This relates to the Toydarian uh, power about hovering, where it says that Toydarians have wings that allow them to hover slightly off the ground, but it doesn't actually say anything about providing true flight. It just it basically allows them to ignore difficult terrain for the purposes of hindering movement. Oh, yeah, totally. This is one of those things we kind of leave up to narrative. I would say he yeah. flutters down. I mean, given you know the gases the Toydarians have in them to make them lighter and everything... Uh, you know, we didn't want to give them full flight, first of all, because it's powerful. Second of all, because it's, you know, given their fluff, you know, they are hovering is perfect for what their species is capable of doing. Right. But I would vote he flutters down safely as, if he's conscious. Yeah. <laughs> if he's not conscious, well, then he's a brick. <laughs> well, it, with the gas bladder, maybe he's a, a, a nerf brick. That's true. A, yeah, ner- a nerf uh, brick. A beach ball. Yeah, yes, yes, very good, beach ball. He can, st- he can still pop if he hits hard enough, but hey. <laughs> poor, tar- poor, poor Toydarians. <laughs> in, a con- in the con game I ran at Gen Con, uh, uh, a group was very cruel to, t- to a Toydarian. I feel like they get a rough lot in life. Yeah, what do you know? <laughs> and the last question is my own. Um, if you were invited to an Edge of the Empire game, but had to play a Toydarian... What would you make? Oh, this one was super easy. Uh, I uh, would absolutely make a Tridarian Politico, um, and I would focus on scathing tirade and use his higher willpower to do this kind of scathing tirade build where if you get up to Improved and Supreme, 
uh, you can be scathing tirading like three times a turn and just <laughs> like you're this Toydarian just sitting in the middle of the battlefield yelling at the opponents, you know, <laughs> telling them how your group is going to kick their asses and uh, <laughs> dealing just a ton of AOE strain. Um, and th- that is that is the build I would go with. <laughs> what are you doing? You hold your blaster like that. You're going to shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> Didn't your mother teach you anything about how to hold a gun? <laughs> I asked that one because I just started up a game myself. We were running through um, Beyond the Rim, and a good buddy of mine and former co-host made basically a Toydarian Mossad agent. <laughs> Ouch. He's this Toydarian bounty hunter assassin who, who is a freelancer for the whatever passes for the Toydarian uh, intelligence community. That's awesome. And he's having an absolute blast with it because his cover is that he's like this roaming furniture salesman. <laughs> That's a very nice couch. I give you a good deal on that. You want to buy this couch? Yeah, Hardman. Yeah. <laughs> Secretly hiding my gun. I got these duvet covers. Very nice. <laughs> Meet me tonight under the arch. We trade then. <laughs> so I had to ask. And that, that is a sick build, man. Because <laughs> you can hover. You can just get anywhere you need to be and just shout at people. Oh, yeah. You are an utter agitator. <laughs> you can actually dole out a decent amount of strain too if you if you you min max your pool nicely. Yeah, that that is one of the things that I've noticed about skating tirade. Most most of the games I've been in, skating tirade has been there, but no one's cranked it up to its huge potential. And and in anticipation of that, I've taken a look, and it gets nasty. It gets real nasty. You can drop. yeah, it does. But it's easier easy. It's pretty easy to counter. You know, if you're trying to do it over. True comms or something they can just switch them off um yeah. people can you know I, I i did it once actually in a campaign and my gm kind of uh ruled that eventually they kind of diminishing returns you know after yelling at them for a couple rounds they they're having none of it <laughs> still and it's nothing it's nothing compared to a nice heavy uh repeating blaster this is true but that first yell you could get a lot done i mean you could drop minions i mean hard really oh hard. yeah so yeah great build great build so those are the three races. Do you have a favorite species that uh, from this book? And if so, why? Oh, it's probably going to be Toydarians we've been talking about. Uh, just because they're so unique mechanically. You know, they've got the smaller size. They've got the hovering. Um, they're just goofy little dudes. And uh, I, I like them for it. I like, I like the goofy small guys. I'm, I'm always the guy who always played Ewoks or Squibs. <laughs> um yeah yeah toy and toy yeah it's just it's yeah i mean the chiss are awesome uh don't get me wrong but uh gotta love the Todarians. <laughs> and finally this might be the first question where you really can't comment but i i wanted to get it out of the way here um were there any species considerations that didn't quite make the cut for this book and if so are you able to give us a clue as to what they may have been <laughs> well, uh, quite a few were considered, actually. And, but as I said, you know, we plan out the whole line in advance, including the species that will be included in each book. So you know, there weren't like, specifics that were you know, just about to make the Explorer book. We sat down and we said, you know, these are the three that are going to go into the Explorer book. These are the three that are going to go into the Hired Gun book, etc. Um, so you know, there were some that didn't make that full list, but uh, yeah, you'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> 
Agatheron mentioned Jawas in this book, and as soon as you said Jawa, my brain immediately more went towards um, the mechanics book. No, Agatheron. dude, that, I'll, that, I'll, I'll bet when when and if we see a Tatooine source book, okay? Oh, uh, okay, All that's right. true. You know, it, you know, like we we just we just got Sons of Fortune. Maybe we can have twin sons of of Fortune. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <coughs> Yeah, no, you, you guys are smart, you're intelligent, you're not going to leave Jawas off the table forever. You'll put Jawas in the book. <laughs> Some book, somewhere. He says with a slightly threatening demeanor. Um, <laughs> you will put Jawas <laughs> you in the RPG. <laughs> Waving your hand, you will put Jawas in this RPG. And then one of my PCs can once again make their Jawa Jedi. <sighs> yes, twin sons of salvage, love it. <laughs> Thank you, Agatheron. Oh, Win! Win. All so right. we jumped over something when we went right to the species. Uh, we missed the two new obligations. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about obligations. We missed that. Um, Fervor and sponsorship. Yeah, dude. So, so I mean, obviously, you guys talk about obligation a fair bit because it's a big part of Edge of the Empire uh, in this book. But you you have a pair of new obligations. Um, they're on page 19, uh, that, that fervor and sponsorship. Um, some questions that I had about those, Sam. Um, obviously, new obligations. Awesome. Love it. Are those two obligations exclusive to the Explorer characters? Because they really only appear in that Explorer, you know, table for Explorer obligations. Are those exclusive to Explorers, or can we use them elsewhere? Oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, the, they're not ex- exclusive to Explorers if you don't want. I mean, the, the table is designed, you know, the way it's designed is basically an alternative obligation table to roll on slash look at for Explorers specifically. Right. Um, but that being said, Obligation's totally narrative, and whatever you want your obligation to be, really, we just lay out a set of guidelines, and if you want your obligation to be something completely new, uh, we totally encourage that. Um, so, in that case, if, if non-explorers want to take one of those two new obligations, they totally can feel free. You know, like a politico could take the fervor and be kind of a preacher. A doctor could take sponsorship, like a sponsorship to bring medical aid to, uh, you know, uh, worlds in need, that kind of thing. Well, I thought I could see someone being as a member of the Bounty Hunters Guild having a sponsorship obligation. Yeah, or totally. or fervor, depending on the guild. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, I mean fer- fervor was was just so f- wonderfully uh, flavorful. I was like, oh, that's that's great. I, I got I'm missing that. That's wonderful. And then sponsorship, I of course immediately go to you know this belongs in a museum, you know, and you know not not, <laughs> not from ten percent. You see that that's fervor and sponsorship. Fervor is this belongs in a museum. Um, sponsorship is I have to bring this back to my museum. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you could see those two spots or those two obligations fitting into others. Like, you know, fervor could maybe fit into obsession and sponsorship could fit into debt or something. But, uh, as I said, this table was designed, you know, to evoke flavor for explorers specifically. So, you know, I worked with, uh, Sean Patrick Fannon on that and we tried, we broke them out because we felt like they offered more flavor to explorers. So dude, dude. Superb. Okay, well, let's talk about some new specializations um, because, uh, and I, I know we'll probably spend a lot of time on this, but this was this was the you know the the kicker. Three brand new specs for the explorer. We have the archaeologist, we have the big game hunter, and we have the driver. So let's talk about the archaeologist, man, because this this is <laughs> uh, this is honestly the role that I I salivate over when I think explorer. Um. I mean, since I first picked up the core rule book, no, no, since I first picked up the beta book for Edge of the Empire, that's where my brain went when I read Explorer. And 
most players I don't think get what an explorer can be in my opinion and this kind of kind of lays it out for them. So what led to the design of the archaeologist? I mean, was it an easy choice to include it and and what what led down that path? Well, I mean, we really had to archaeology is a huge thing in Star Wars, you know, it, across all of the EU stuff. You know, you look at all the Sith ruins, you know, the Infinite Empire ruins, the Jedi ruins. Uh, there's a ton of history, and archaeology is really important. So uh, thematically, we just needed to. And the opportunity to do an Indiana Jones spec uh, slash Laura Croft spec <laughs> was uh, – it was just too awesome to turn up. Now, the of the several – now, there are – obviously, it's a new tree, um, but as is, as is commonly done and should be done, there's obviously talents in the tree that you'll find elsewhere in other, in, in other trees. Um, but – there are some new talents in this tree that are kind of unique, at least at this point, to the archaeologist. Um, and they offer this, like you said, this great Indiana Jones mix. It's like the whole tree is this this mix of scholarly stuff and then tough as nails, grit, and, and exploration. I mean, it's like, it's like yeah, you're a researcher, but you're also you're, – you're really just a tough sum gun. Because one of the things I think of when I think about Indy is the fact that he gets the living heck beat out of him. I mean, <laughs> he, he, the man takes a lot of punishment. Um, and, and he's still slagging along. And so I was very, very pleased with that. But there is one talent, Fish, uh, museum-worthy, that has kicked off a lot of questions and a lot of discussion on, on our forums and over on uh, on the FFG forums. And, in fact, both Jaeger Grita and Happy Days hit us up with a question about museum-worthy. Um, paraphrasing, uh, the museum-worthy talent, how does this differ from a normal knowledge education check? Um, beyond letting the archaeologist use education in place of perhaps lore, xenology, or another knowledge set. Moreover, what's the point of museum-worthy? Is it intended just to allow knowledge education to be used as a fallback for tasks that largely appear to be covered with knowledge lore or, you know, xenology? So, yeah, not, talents that relate to knowledge skills are really interesting because they're very hard to design because knowledge skills are used incredibly differently uh, from group to group. Um, more than almost any other skill, uh, different groups find them useful to different degrees. Uh, and actually this very question is something we discussed during development. I discussed with my other developers, um, and whether or not we even wanted to include this talent. Uh, and actually it was the play testers, our internal play testers that, uh, and feedback from them that led us to leave it in. Um, they really liked it actually. They kind of saw it as an extra bump. You know, there's so many times where basically your knowledge check is just getting the GM to tell you what you need to know anyway. Um, and, you know, very often the GM doesn't want you to know something or something or other and, uh, you know, tells you, oh, you can test it, but it's not really going to do anything. And uh, this talent allowed for that extra bump uh, above and beyond, you know, and, and it also allowed you to specialize in a single knowledge skill and make it more useful. Um, so between those two things, our playtesters actually really liked the talent so we left it in um and it's going to be different amounts of useful to different groups mm. because of the way knowledge skills are uh, but i think it's worth it for the people who do get use out of it oh, dude <clears throat> excellent um I, I i liked it i thought it was kind of cool i mean it's a once per session thing and you know one thing the talent does specify is what your difficulty is and if I'm doing a lore or a xenology and it's something like, you know, I've, I've discovered, you know, a piece of Rakatan tech and I have no idea who they are and nobody else does because, you know, they're, 
you know, forgotten in the galaxy at this point. That might be a, what, what might normally be a daunting or formidable knowledge check. Well, you know, once a session, I can bump that down to a hard and do it with education. I thought that was very, you know, if the GM's cool with that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Or the GM could be like, you have absolutely no reason to know what that is. And you're like, are you sure? <laughs> I got this once per session thing. What do you say? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so next up was the big game hunter. Um, you know, the big game hunter is, is an interesting one. It, it, it kind of, uh, some of the, some of the other explorer specializations out there, I kind of saw as big game hunter. Um, and then this came out. Um, I mean, talk to me about the overall intent of the big game hunter, uh, why include it, and and how did it fit into the the theme of this book? Because it's it's very interesting, uh, kind of different path of thinking about the explorer. I mean, some some might lump this into you know like uh, you know in, into that mercenary aspect or soldier aspect, but I don't know. This is interesting. Talk to me about big game hunter. Yeah. Uh, well, originally, you know, I talked about how we have these kind of design holes we want to fill. And so we wanted to give the Explorer kind of a combat-focused uh, specialization. Um, so this kind of spawned out of that. Um, additionally, you know, we wanted to explore kind of the Alan Quartermain uh, theme, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, we had a conversation about, you see all these giant creatures in captivity in all the different Star Wars movies, but you never <laughs> see how they get there. Somebody had to go out... <laughs> And capture that rancor for for Jabba. You know, somebody had to go and get the Nexu and the other creatures in Episode 2. And so, you know, there's obviously people out here doing this job. Um, And we just thought it was a cool space, and that's kind of what led us to put them in. Now, that's an important note, because, like, the talent tree for this is this real mix of, like, stalking and tracking abilities, and then abilities that obviously focus on letting you take down big game, specifically big game. I mean, there's, that's kind of what it applies to. Um, but you know, in relation to that, th- there's some cool combative talents that are in here. And one of the questions I had for you was, I thought this was a bit unusual, and I was wondering if you could talk to me about it. Um, when I look at some of the combative talents, uh, specifically like heightened awareness and hunter's quarry, they seem to be focused on aiding your allies more than they aid yourself. Um, I think that's really unique. What led to that? Well, I kind of saw it as, you know, that kind of hunting party vibe kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Edge of the Empire, obviously, is a group game. Um, so you're always going to be with that group. And usually, if you're playing the big game hunter, you're probably going to be with a bunch of people who aren't as versed in the wilderness as you are. Because <laughs> you're, you're likely going to be, like, the only explorer. Or maybe there might be one other explorer specced differently than you or something. Um, so in that sense, you're almost their guide. Right, you are when you guys go to take down that big game. You're you're their guide to taking this thing down. So you're the one, you know, ordering, you know, bring it down, and you know, focus your fire here. Um, so in, in that way, we kind of felt like it made sense to have those talents for helping your allies deal with the dangers of hunting. I love bring it down. Bring it down is great. Um, it's hilarious. That, that that's that's fantastic. And and for those who who are I mean are, are not are, are curious, bring it down is uh, oh gosh that's you could I think it's you can spend a destiny spend point. It, yep, I got it right here. Spend a destiny point once per attack to add damage to a single hit equal to the target's brawn value. So when you're fighting the rancor, <laughs> <laughs> or, or the giant Wookiee. Oh yeah, yeah. That's just that, that's fantastic. Um, very well designed. 
and that was the one thing that, that like like Chris was saying, that was the one thing that struck me when I finally got to see this talent chain. Like, oh, big game hunter. Okay, so it'll look like some sort of combination between scout and assassin. And there's very little actual, you know, gun enhancing talents in here. You're right, Chris. It's all party enhancing, with the exception of bring it down. I mean, but really well done. Nice way to take a different look at a at a combat class for what is considered to be not a combat career. Oh, I, I'd like to come now. The comment you said there, except for bring it down. Um, now that I'm reading this, uh, there is no and, and hey, fish. Tell me if this is incorrect, but reading this, there's nothing stopping you from doing this on someone else's attack. Character may spend one destiny point to add damage to a single hit equal to oh his target's brawn value. Mm. Yeah, okay. I'd probably say that applies to you. Um, yeah, it, 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 that one only applies to your attacks. Okay. Um, however, okay. Hunter's Quarry allows you to buff the rest of your group. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, to get to, the, to get to that combat efficiency in the big game Hunter, you really need to commit and get down to that lower left-hand corner. But once you pick up Hunter's Quarry, improved Hunter's Quarry, and bring it down, you're going to be effective. Yeah. You guys, you know, that, that boss encounter, you guys are going to be a serious threat. <laughs> Love it. Okay. So talk to me about the driver. This is the one that surprised me. I mean, it's the consummate wheel man. Um, I want to talk about what led to the design of the driver and this kind of why we included it, because I've actually talked with you about the driver before. Um, we've seen this talent tree before, because when we had you on to talk about the Age of Rebellion beta book, we talked about it. The driver is a specialization in the ace career in the AOR beta. So... One of the one of the conversations that we had when you were last on was, you know, we talked about that that repeating because that happened elsewhere in the AOR beta where we saw kind of this repetition of a of a specialization. And you said to me, no, look, a specialization is a specialization. You're always going to have the same skills. You're always going to have the same talents. It's going to be the same regardless of which career it appears in. And and we're seeing that here. I mean, obviously, the only reason you you would get it here as opposed to the ace was because you would have different um, career skills that overlay the the, the specialization skills, obviously. Mm. Um, so why the reprint, dude? I mean, because they truly are identical, aside from the, those career skills, of course. What what led to that? Um, again, like the uh, like the Duros, it was partly partially because of planning the Edge product line before the Age product line. Um, right. And you know, we, we we had the driver in the Explorer, um, and in Age, we knew that we wanted a driver in the Ace as well because driving ground vehicles was important to. The rebellion. Well, it's the um, it's the ace. You gotta have. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that, that that was kind of part of the motivation behind the, the reprint. We wanted to give you know the unique experience to the two different game lines. Um, for those for the customer who only plays Edge or for the customer who only plays Age. Um, again, you know the reprints <clears throat> will be minimal, but they're going to happen to kind of make sure that all of our bases are covered specialization wise. And it's nice because the one thing that reprinting this accomplishes for us is the only other solution to getting this role into both game lines would be to print two different drivers, um, you know, by under different names. Um, but doing that allows for characters who just want to min-max to, like, you know, I'm going to be a driver and then this other version of this driver and just stack them all together and, you know, like, stack up my ranked talent super high. And they can still do that. It's just more interesting when they have to kind of stack, you know, pilot with driver or something like that. Um, so that, that, that's, that's part of the motivation behind the reprint. Gotcha. Um, okay. So with specializations kind of ending that out again, Andy, do you have a favorite specialization? If so, why anything that didn't make the cut, you could tell us about, but, uh, what's your favorite spec? 
Uh, well, in this book, mm-hmm. it's probably going to be the big game hunter. Oh, uh, okay. I really like how he turned out. Um, I really like uh, how the shape of the tree and that lower left-hand corner and those new talents. Um, so it's probably my favorite. Very nice. Now, there's two other things. I want to talk about these really quick. Uh, we don't. We didn't really get any whole lot of questions on them because they're pretty straightforward, but they're worth noting. Um, uh, and we've, we've hinted at one already. The first is, much as how we had uh, uh, two new uh, obligations that were present in this book, we have a new motivation as well, which is very fitting, and that would be the discovery motivation. Um, and so that that's obviously... I. I <clears throat> I almost feel like this is a wasted question. I'm like, gee, why'd you include the discovery motivation in the Explorer book? Because um, <laughs> uh, it, it does make a lot of sense. But do we see that also apply? I mean, this motivation could apply elsewhere, yeah? We don't have to limit this to explorers. Oh, no. I, with all with everything, you know, we want this content to be used by anybody who can make their experience more fun and more flavorful by using this content uh, should feel free, especially all this fluffy content. Like, it's motivations, obligations, everything, you know, whatever you feel is right for the character you want to build, you should totally grab and use. Mm. Um, you mm. know, we, we included it here because, you know, we wanted to add that kind of explorer flavor to these motivations, to the people who wanted to roll randomly. It gets that explorer flavor in and it gives a bunch of inspiration to people who want to choose. Um, and that's kind of why we added it. Gotcha. So the other thing, uh, really, in that character advancement section uh, to talk about, we hinted at it before, and I, uh, we didn't have any direct questions for it, so I don't even have anything uh, uh, heavy on it in the show notes, but I, I do want to talk about it because the fact that you mentioned it was your favorite thing in the book, we really do need to delve on it. Talk to me about signature abilities. Be- mm. um, I mean, uh, expound, sir. I mean, we, obviously, and, and now that now that Dangerous Covenant is out, we can see that this is this is hopefully going to be a theme throughout all the various, uh, you know, source bo- spe- uh, career source books that we, that we see. But um, I mean, they're they're fascinating. I mean, each one is like, okay, you can you can get to it from from one of these two areas. You know, you have to come at it from the tree from this area, and then it's almost like a force power. You know, you buy into it, and then you can you can dig deeper and enhance it even more with you know various you know subsets of it. Um, that cost you know ten or fifteen XP. Um, so, talk to me about about signature abilities, man. I mean, just in general, what led you guys to this? I know you wrote an awesome article on them um, not too long ago on the FFG uh, website. But why 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 this? Why signature abilities? Well, why? As I said earlier, um, we really wanted. There are a few motivations behind it. We really wanted characters to be able to commit to their career. Um, instead of you know maybe just taking a few specializations from their career, we wanted you to be able to feel like you were in the end game. Um, and this was one nice way to do it. You've maxed out your uh, uh, your specialization tree, and now you've committed to this other ability that you continue to refine. Um, and it gives non-Force-sensitive characters that kind of spotlight moment, that really cool thing you do once a session, maybe twice if you've upgraded it. Um, where you really shine and everybody's like, wow, I, explorers are cool. Um, you know, hired guns are cool. Uh, and a lot of them actually are inspired by movie moments. Um, when we're designing these different signature abilities, we're like, all right, so this type of character in a movie, what's a, what's a trope for the really cool moment for them? (laughs) Um, yeah, for example, uh, I mean, I know we're getting a little off topic on this book, but for example, in Dangerous Covenants, uh, um, I know exactly we, we have, what you're uh, talking about. 
last one standing, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, con- the controversial last one standing. And uh, when we were sitting around the office planning that, you know, we're talking about those scenes. That's totally a scene, a, a trope in movies. You know, you got like Woody Harrelson in uh, Zombieland where he gets like covered in those zombies inside that little thing. And then you don't see him. And then like a scene later, he's fine. You know, he's, take- he's taking care of it. Don't even worry about it. Um, and, uh, similarly, you know, sudden discovery in the Explorers book was kind of inspired by that. You know, you have that like, oh my God, how are we going to find this location? And then, you know, like cut. Oh, it's so glad you could lead us right here. <laughs> it, 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 see, to me, sudden discovery is, is the screen wipe. Okay? Yes. That, that classic Star Wars screen. I, I don't even know how you got there. You just got there. All right. And and you know if if you can't if you don't want to handle that through the narrative aspect because for story reasons you can't or it's part of the journey this allows the player to enforce a screen wipe into the story, and that's brilliant. Yeah, and we knew they were going to be a bit divisive when we designed them, um, because they kind of take that more cinematic element where you know you're going to maybe for sudden sudden discovery you might forego a whole scene of you know like making skill checks to like find this location and stuff and suddenly it's yeah it's that screen white moment but you know the, the character has advanced himself and created himself to facilitate that and it's this moment and it keeps the story moving fast and it allows that character to have that really cool moment where they help the group out and they move the story along and then unmatched mobility is every pulp hero in every uh, hidden ancient empire temple being chased by every undead zombie in the history of cinema. Oh, yeah, and you're just a little faster than everybody else. Uh, I, I really like how that one turned out as well. You're staying ahead of the falling boulder. And the horde of zombies and the horde of mummies and Brendan Fraser's own idiom. <laughs> <laughs> and his haircut. Ah. Mm. <laughs> There's no staying out of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's an action. But, you need an action to stay ahead of that. Yeah. Yes, yes. Awesome. Okay, well, I think this is a good time to have a quick break point and get to uh, one of our listener segments for the show. Um, Last episode, we debuted a brand new and shiny listener segment that was so good, we begged and pleaded Donnie Bain to bring us another one, and and the man did not disappoint. Um, Phil, did you listen to last episode? Um, oh, absolutely. I, so, I mean, I was I was blown away by the. I mean, you've been doing fragments for a long time. You know what it takes. I mean, and for a first time out bit, I was shocked and amazed. Impressed. I was very a, impressed with it. I was very impressed. Um, so again and again, Donnie Bain, thank you so much, guys. Be prepared to be whisked around the galaxy in style yet again as we jet set with the best darn galactic travel agency on Coruscant. Let's check in with Galactic Adventures. This will be a day long remembered. I have a very bad feeling about this. Watch your mouth, kid. You're going to find yourself floating home. Moss Eisley, the spaceport. I'll be careful. You'll be dead. Travel through hyperspace in like Dustin Crops, boy. Welcome to Galactic Adventures, an insight into Coruscant's premier travel agency. Here comes a customer. Let's listen in. Good afternoon. Welcome to Galactic Adventures, Coruscant's premier travel agency. I'm Lekbar. How can I assist you today? I see. 
Looking for some adventure, are we? I have some fantastic vacation packages that fit exactly what you are looking for. Let me tell you about Dathomir. It's located in the Outer Rim, just off the Hydean Way. It is truly a beautiful planet to behold. Four moons light up the night sky, and the planet's surface is dotted with lakes, mountains, and forests. There's all manner of terrain to pique your interest, whether you wish to go swimming or mountain climbing. But most interesting is how wild and unkempt it is. Forests untouched and full of amazing wildlife. This is where the Outer Rim Hunters Guild will take over. They're a small company who specializes in big game hunts. How exciting! They will provide passage past the Imperial Blockade. Oh, please, sir, don't worry. The blockade is simply a protective measure. You see, it turns out that one of Dathomir's moons, Koratus, contains all sorts of valuable minerals. I've been told they're used for shipbuilding. The Imperial Blockade is there to protect the interests of the Empire. We aren't trying to do anything illegal, but the paperwork can be a hassle and, well, expensive. Once you're past the blockade, you will be taken to one of their several hunting lodges. The forest is far too dense to land in. You'll want to watch out for clans of Night Sisters. These disgusting women enslaved Zabrax centuries ago and used them to breed. They're mainly known for causing trouble and practicing mysterious magics. They can be quite dangerous if you aren't careful. Please, sir, please, please, sit down. I thought you wanted adventure. The guild will protect you. Do not worry. They will have someone on hand with the speaking skills to get you past any of the ignorant half-breed natives you may encounter. Any politico worth his salt can provide the charm you need. And if not, part of the cost of your trip will include the means to pay off the right people for safety while on the planet. A big game hunt is always an exciting trip. You'll be hunting the deadliest natural predator that Dathomir has to offer. The Rancor! <coughs> That's correct! You'll be hunting Rancor. The Hunter's Guild will supply you with all the support you need, including the weaponry required to take down such a mighty beast. You'll be in the native forest for many days. Rancors take a great deal of time to kill. A survivalist of some kind will be responsible for foraging, tracking, and even assisting with the kill. He will likely know just where to place your attack for maximum damage. I know for a fact that the guild has a very skilled Trandoshan bodyguard they can provide on their more dangerous trips. He has all the moves necessary to keep you safe from the native flora and fauna. If you were going to bring someone along, I'd strongly recommend someone with some skills in gadgetry. An outlaw tech of some kind. You'll want to set snares and traps for the beast during your hunt, and I bet they'll do a pretty good job of keeping your equipment functional over the time you are there. Oh, the cost, of course. Well, the basic package starts at 60,000 credits. The Outer Rim Hunters Guild will provide you with passage to the Dathomir system, a blaster carbine, two ammo packs, five stim packs, and a JM5000 jump master to navigate yourself from the outskirts of the system to the planet's surface. It's quite a bargain. Oh, sir, I'm sorry, I thought you knew. The blockade running, safe passage, accommodations, guided hunt, survivalist, bodyguard, pilot, and politico are all optional add-ons. The complete package, uh, let's see, carry the seven uh, it comes out to two and a half million credits plus expenses no refunds 
Wait, sir, no, please don't go. Just... Oh, rats. There goes my commission. Thank you for joining us on Galactic Adventures. And remember, it's a big galaxy out there. Fly safely. You're all clear, kid. Now let's blow this thing and go home. <laughs> so wrong. <laughs> Be hunting Rancor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, <clears throat> Fish, what do you say we talk about some gear? Absolutely. All right, well, if we're going to do that, we have to take a special jaunt to, uh, I think this is rather fitting considering our, our earlier conversations, to a very old friend of the show by the name of Watto. Let me take that back, huh? Let me find out what you need. I'm gonna pop some tags, only got twenty dollars in my pocket. I'm looking for a come up. This is a black market. <laughs> what do you know? Speaking of toy Darians. <laughs> Uh, so Waddle's Black Market is normally where we take the time to delve into a specific piece of tech in the Star Wars universe uh, that people have had questions about. But since we're talking about Enter the Unknown, and we actually have several questions about several pieces of tech, I thought it apropos to just uh, kind of delve into it here. Um, so, Philbert, take us away. All right. Our first question comes from Yager Grite. Uh, and let's, let's summarize what he's got here. Uh, this was discussed a lot after the release of the book. And he's not sure whether he got an official answer, whether any of us got an official answer. The sniper rifle. The fluff mentions limited ammunition capacity, hinting at a limited ammo quantity, uh, quality. But is the sniper rifle missing this quality? Or should it perhaps be given the same runs-out-of-ammo mechanic that the heavy blaster pistol does? Or should we disregard this fluff with no mechanical consequences? Uh, specifically, he's talking about the E-11 sniper rifle. Uh, yeah, I'd probably opt for the last option. Um, the run out I'd of say, ammo mechanic? Or no, I, the, no mechanical consequence. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, we only want ammo tracking on very specific weapons. Uh, just to keep things simple, you know, uh, heavy weapons and, you know, to, to mechanically limit certain um, other weapons such as torpedoes on starships and stuff. Um, right. But for sniper rifles, you know, we don't want you fiddly tracking the ammo in your sniper rifle for the entire combat or whatever. Um, I, this one is more of just an unfortunate incident of the fluff getting a little too close to stating stuff definitively, like, that sounds too much like rules. You know, it, it's, it's a very tricky thing when you have so many different mechanics, all that use, you know, words you want to be t using in your descriptions. Sometimes we get these fluff descriptions that are a little kind of close to, to mechanics. But, um, so I... For this one, you can just disregard that fluff and its closeness to what a mechanic um, and just take the stat block as it is. And it's already got its own, um, it's already got its own limitation. It's slow firing one. 
And that it, alone will that that alone's a balance factor for it. And it's cumbersome, and it's got <laughs> it, and it's got a rarity of seven, and it's thirty five hundred credits, and it's restricted. Yeah, the 11s, uh, it's a it's a tricky one. <laughs> so Darth pseudonym brings us the next question. Two of the new slug thrower weapons, the hammer shotgun and the Zerka detonator rounds, both say in the text that they're intended for taking down particularly large game. And in general, they give the sense that they have superior damage output for your basic blaster rifle. However, in both cases, the weapons have fairly average damage and the blast quality, which deals the blast only to secondary targets and not to the guy you've already hit. In fact, in the case of the detonator rounds, the damage to the main target is reduced by this, since it loses its Pierce 3 in exchange for the blast quality. That's contradictory to the flavor text and says that these rounds add extra punch. Are these weapons intended to deal the blast damage to the primary target when it's activated, contrary to how blast affects? Or is there just some editorial confusion over how blast works? Is there, anything sort of, is there any sort of errata out there on this to sort of clear this up? Uh, there's no rat out there currently on this. Um, I mean, no, the, the blast works normally on these on these weapons. Uh, part of the fluff description there, I believe, is kind of referring to uh, they have a pretty high damage for a slug thrower weapon. Sure. Um, when you compare them to the heavier blasters, obviously they're not going to stack up because they're slug throwers. They're kind of an archaic weapon in Star Wars. But uh, when you compare them to the slug throwers, they're doing pretty good. They're also doing pretty good for weapons that don't have any cumbersome rating or anything for their size. Um mm-hmm. So, uh, no, the, the blast quality works normally. Um, it's just another case of, you know, maybe looking too deeply into our, the fluff descriptions, you know. Uh, we probably could have done some to make the fluff descriptions less misleading, but you can take the stat blocks and rules as is on these weapons. Sounds good. Uh, last question we have for this vein. Uh, Austin comes, from us, comes to us from Austin Catan. What inspired you to put Bible droids into Enter the Unknown? Uh, this is the first time that we've seen that. We didn't see that in either the core rulebook or in even Age of, the, uh, Age of Rebellion's beta book. Uh, what prompted that decision? Um, actually, uh, we do have Bible droids in the core rulebook. Uh, in the adversaries section, all of the droids, um, there's a sidebar that gives prices and rarities for all of those droids provided there. Um, in, in this case, we, we just put them into the gear section because this book didn't, you know, th- that was the most appropriate section to put them. But we have done it before. Um, well, you know, th- those, those were adversaries that you could happen to buy. You know, like with these droids, they definitely have a, like, market function. So um, those, they said that you, I see what you're saying. In, in this book, these droids, for the most part, seem to me to feel more like gear yeah. than, than anything else. They, they give you a function. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, a lot of these you're not buying a new crew member. You're just buying a, you know, a, a drone that you're sending out or something. Right. I loved it. I was like, yes, I can buy because I, you know, that that cop got got past me. I did. I forgot about the sidebar in in the core rulebook. I was like, oh, gosh, yeah. Um. <laughs> so, oh, that's, the, that's the droids awesome. also include uh, one of my ideas, the ATED, oh. all terrain ex- all terrain exploration droid. Nice. So that so that was your idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's a few things that you know when I'm kind of talking to the writers initially, I kind of throw out some ideas for, you know, things we'd like to see included. You know, new things we'd like to th- throw in. That kind of thing. Dude, fully automated walker. It's 
It's wicked. <laughs> Makes sense. It's got it's got kind of this sort of like Cylon Cylon you know? look. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we joked about that in the office when the the art first came in, but they ended up looking pretty sweet. Yeah, they do. If not a little evil. It's a nice artwork. Yeah, it is. Nice so, uh, you know, maybe this answers this question, but do you have a favorite piece, a favorite weapon or piece of gear from the book? <laughs> you guys uh, might laugh at this one, but um, I, I think actually uh, my favorite piece of gear is the glop grenades. Uh, that's, that's awesome! That's an awesome answer! They're just funny. I, I remember the first time I read about them, I think they show up in like the very first of the Thrawn trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get thrown at like Luke and Leia and Han when they're ambushed by Nogri initially. Yep. Um, and I was like, I was reading and I was like, what is this? What is happening as they get like covered in this glop and like, you know, get solidified in it. But they kind of grew on me and especially in the RPG, they're pretty awesome. Well, I love the idea that if you're not careful, you can suffocate somebody with it. Yeah. The the accidental. Yes. <laughs> it's a Batman weapon. It is kind of Batman. It, it's, it's totally a Batman weapon. Oh, it's, oh man. It, it's, yeah, that's... <laughs> Boom! <laughs> <laughs> Glorious glop, Batman. <laughs> you fell for my glop grenade, Robin. <laughs> Do I look like a cop? Do you have marbles in your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> no, why? <laughs> Sorry, weird reference. Oh no! If, if you get if you get the chance uh, for the reference, uh, if you watch um, uh, he she the how it should have ended um, on YouTube, they have a whole series, and they have one for uh, uh, when 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 uh, was it, I think it was when when Batman Begins first came out. They released one, yeah. and it's like and afterwards, it's like they've done them before, and it's always Batman and Superman in a cafe talking afterwards. It's all animated, you know, and they're having a cool discussion. And it's like you know, and Batman's like you know releases his new his new costume, and it's like oh my god, that's that's awesome, man. Yeah, you like it? He's like, yeah. Oh, is is that your new voice? Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Uh, do you have marbles in your mouth? No. Uh, <laughs> I'm Batman. I'm, I'm I'm Batman. Um, God, it's brilliant. <laughs> so continuing the uh, the the gear and equipment chapter, we move on to the biggest piece of gear in any PC's repertoire, the starship. And you give us some beautiful starships in this book, man. Yeah, you do. A lot of homage back to uh, back to the early eras of Star Wars gaming in here. I'm just flipping through it my, right here, and I'm like, okay, that book's wrong. That, uh, that starship's from 1996, and that one's from 98, <laughs> and 93. Oh, yeah, when we... When we do art references for these and stuff, uh, there were some where, you know, I only had those ancient uh, black and white sketches to, to give Zoe as our the side references. profile, the top profile. Yeah. Yep. Glorious stuff. Um, well, we had a lot of questions about some of the art, though, or at least at least uh, uh, some some questions. Uh, one mm. question. One question. I don't know. Phil, I mean, hit, hit us up with some of the listener questions because we had some we had a few. Sure. Uh, let's let's start with the let's, let's start with the one question about artwork. Uh, Swift draw. Swift draw is curious. Uh, it's a bit of minutia when it comes to the book, but it's been nagging him. On page sixty-two of Enter the Unknown, there's a nice picture of an Explorer Scout ship, the big boxy brown one, and it doesn't appear to have stats for it in the book. He's curious if this was a, was redundant and got cut, if it's being saved for future release, or was there an art mix-up with the E nine Explorer or something else. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you can see on the other page, the E9's in there on the opposite yeah. page, or it, back one. Um, no, actually, this one's my fault. Uh, when we commissioned the art, uh, you know, everything's kind of going on simultaneously, and 
Uh, we were going to include it, uh, and it got cut. But I commissioned in the same piece the Gitrock, the our lovely space turtle, oh, and yes. a, uh, a the A twenty four sleuth. And I, I wanted to have them still in the book, and so I just I, I put the art, art piece in. We got the E nine in the back as back backdrop, but unfortunately, you you, sure. do, you do not get stats for it in this product. <laughs> Perhaps later. Perhaps. Uh, moving on to a question from Yager Grite. He wants to know, is it intentional that the YV-560 has the same amount of both hull trauma and system strain threshold? I think he's questioning that. You really don't see that too often, but as I'm flipping through this book, actually, you see it twice. Because not yep. only does the YV-560 have that, but also the Incom A36 Pathfinder also has a hull trauma 16 and a system strain of 16. Yep, it was, they're there, and yeah, it's intentional. Just happens to be that they both match. It's a tough well, ship in either well, either in yeah. either vein. Well, okay. When, yep. I'm, when I'm dealing with sixteen and sixteen, that's one thing. But it's like when I see like system strain and whole trauma of twenty. I mean, that's a stout ship. But this is the YV line. I mean, they're mm. they're they're hot. I mean, that was. I mean, that's you know many 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 millennia of CEC doing their best work. You know, culminated in that. And the um, picture that goes with it is covered in minox and it's oh, still going strong. Dude, that's a great piece of art too. It's oh, it's one of my favorite. That's just that's gorgeous. You got some great artists in your stable. This is great. Oh, absolutely! Stuff. I, I believe that one is uh, Ben Zweifel. Um, he just he is probably my favorite Starship artist. He's just phenomenal. Now, just off on a tangent, that is one thing I have noticed is that when I see some of these artworks, and I'm like, "Oh, this is great! Who does this?" And I'm trying to look through the rest of the whole art piece. I'm like, "There's no signature in here. How do we know who did this?" Um, do, do is there any? You know, consideration as far as what's going as far as I don't want to say, you know, giving artists their credit due. Um, but is that sort of a design requirement that, you know, you don't want the the artist's signature kind of drawing the eye away from the image itself? Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of part of our graphic design style is, you know, the integration into the page and everything. Um, you know, we, we want to to give our artists credit because they just do phenomenal work. Um, you know, we credit them all on the front, and we highlight their pieces on, on our website and different articles and stuff. Um, oh, cool. Okay. So it, it, we, we try to give them credit. But, yeah, that's more of a just design consideration. Sure. Um, well, get, getting back to the discussion at hand um, and raw stats and another thing that I – when he pointed it out, I kind of wondered immediately myself – um, Happy Days asks uh, concerning the Incom A36 Pathfinder – the upgrade of the A24, it says it mounts a light ion cannon with a listed damage of 8. And this is considerably higher than the usual damage 5 that you typically see for a light ion cannon or any light weapon that's mentioned in the books. Uh, is the damage 8 listing correct or is it an error? Uh, yeah, no, that's a good catch. That one is a, a bit of a whoops. <laughs> it, it should be 5. <laughs> okay. Um, it, it's, it's a light ion cannon and, uh, they're supposed to stay consistent with the damage listed in the core book. So, okay. all right. Five it is. So they, five it is. Hey, we'll, we'll definitely include it in a errata when we, uh, get around to doing one. Um, Until then, everyone out there should consider that official. <laughs> Cause you heard it here. On this non-official podcast. Hush. Um, <laughs> Don't undermine your cred. <laughs> I have cred. <laughs> it's usually my line. Uh, Don't let it go to your head. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
as I said, you give us a bunch of awesome ships in this book, and naturally, as we've asked for just about every other topic today, do you have a favorite ship? Oh, well, it's probably going to be the YV-560 in this book. Yeah. Um, You know, as we previously discussed, Marker did a great job. This is another one of uh, uh, my pitches I wanted to add. uh, One to the the venerable Corellian line. Um, So uh, I pitched the YV-560, and Jason Marker wrote it up. Ben Zweifel did the art, and everything turned out five fantastic for it. So uh, it's probably my favorite. Oh. Now, would you? Now, how many of these ships? You know, you know how you, you you start when you make a character, you make a group party. They give you the three ships in the book that says you choose one of these. Um, do you consider these ships to be balanced to to a starting party? Um, I mean, if they fit within the credit limitation, I I don't don't remember the number off the top of my head, and I don't have my core book handy. But um, we do give guidance for like, hey, you can choose any ship under this credit amount. Um, Gotcha. Then yes, then we consider them balanced. Um, so uh, we take that into consideration in our pricing. Um, if we think it's a good ship for a starting party, we put it under that credit threshold. Mm. Very cool. Now, that that was really the, the extent of the listener questions we had. I mean, after that, in terms of the rest of the book, obviously, we from there we move into into the final chapter in the book. That 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 third and final chapter which is sort of you know grand expeditions i believe it's called where you guys get into really a lot of the gm and flavor and player flavor stuff a lot of the really good information on you know who becomes an explorer what are their what are their uh, proclivities what are their personalities like you know what are some good role-playing hooks you know as as a gm how do you go about crafting scenes in this vein if your party wants to have this kind of uh adventure and, and run a campaign in this side of the galaxy and focusing on these types of themes you know h- how do you do so how do you how do you make you know pcs and npcs memorable um one of my possibly favorite pieces of art in the book um is actually on page 81 80 and 81 um of this chapter which is this incredibly you know old and abandoned desiccated temple complex yes um, uh just the the color palette is is phenomenal um absolutely love that but you know, talking about story construction and adventure uh, seeds, you know, as you continue to go on, you actually, actually, you guys give uh, three great adventure seeds in the book um, before you finally get into the, you know, the, the new nemesis um, uh, and, uh, you know, risks and rewards that you, you might encounter and how to best bring them forth into the game. Um, from, from this section, I mean, from this chapter, I mean... Is the goal here, and after reading it, I guess, you know, and this might be my final question for for the the content of the book itself, but from reading this, it almost seems to me, you know, with with prior systems, we've seen, you know, okay, we're going to do a a source book on X, and uh, it's going to be a whole bunch of new character options and a whole bunch of new equipment and gear and chips that relate to that. Oh, and here's a couple new worlds that might, might rely on stuff like that. But, you know, you guys have taken a slightly different tact here and actually included information more on how to structure adventures and campaigns that literally are in this, this mind frame. So do you guys envision, you know, somebody picking up End of the Unknown and saying, okay, this is not only going to be just, this isn't just the source book for explorers, so here, you're an explorer, look at that, it gives you, gives you some cool options, but do you guys also plan it out in terms of, you know, a GM might take this and go, I want to run an entire adventure in this 
in, in this in this vein? And it, is that is that a common thread we're going to see as the line continues? Oh yeah, you'll see more like this. Um, our, in this kind of pattern we have right now, uh, that third chapter um, is kind of you know this is the explorers book. This is all about four explorers, and the third well, the first two chapters are about giving explorers tools to tackle uh, the adventures ahead. Uh, the third chapter is always about providing explorers with cooler adventures, adventures that are enga- going to engage them more, whether that's through new rules, guidance to the GMs, uh, ideas, that kind of thing. Um, the third chapter is all about making a game that this type of character would really want to play, mm. um, while also engaging the other, the other players. So uh, you're going to see a lot of different stuff in this chapter. Um, this one ended up being a lot of guidance. Others might end up being a lot more rules. And, you know, uh, mm. we might break the formula. Um, you can never, never say what's, what's to come. But um, I'm actually pretty happy with how these final chapters round out the book. Yeah, there's a lot of really great information in there. Um, I, I've, I've, I've played with people that when they pick up the book, they tend to just slough these chapters. They're like, no, I, I'm here for the crunch. It's all I care about. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know, when I, I – it's like, no, re- read it. It's there, Especially as a GM, there's some really good nuggets in there um, and a lot of inspiration. I mean, some of these are, are some inspiration for some great set pieces. Um, for those that are a fan of our, our, our set piece methodology with the GM holocron we've discussed in previous episodes – um, there's, there's some really good, really good instruction and fodder in here. Oh yeah. And that being said, uh, you know, that doesn't limit these chapters from fluff or crunch there. There could totally be crunch in these chapters. You as, you, as you said, yes, yes. Right. Um, but in terms of this book specifically, um, oh yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, it, it's, 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 it's there. Well, and exploration is one of the harder things to run in games. Um, for, for GMs, you know, the, the exploration scene is definitely a type of scene, but, you know, is often just maybe like uh, a single check and then uh, moving on, you found the dungeon you're going to delve into or whatever. Uh, right. And so we wanted to give guidance to help make them a more meaty part of uh, campaigns. Yeah, most of the exploration tends to come across as just sort of like a framework or a bracket for trap rooms or, you know, Native, uh, con- native uh, uh, na- combat versus local natives, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. There really isn't much in there as far as, okay, the exploration and the act of doing so can be the entire game. It can be an entire session or three or seven. And th- th- here's how you can break it out. So, and make it enjoyable. Yes, yes. Very, very good stuff. So that is Enter the Unknown. Um and it is it is awesome. If you guys have not gone out and picked it up yet, you should do so. Um, it's a great buy, and I've already uh, it has already influenced uh, two modules that I've been writing, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm wanting to go back and rewrite others. So and, and, and that, now that that fish is annoying. Okay, <laughs> I'm just gonna t- tell you that. You, you know, you do that to me. I'm just yeah. I'm I'm so sorry. Uh-huh. You know, you're having to redo your work. It's like college all over again. I, I, I swear, it's just it. It is what it is. But what are you gonna do? <sighs> Andy, thank you for being with us. <laughs> Pleasure as always. Ah, the sad piano music comes through. Um. Guys, thank you all for listening. Uh, again, big thanks to Andy Fisher for coming on to talk to us about Enter the Unknown. 
Um, our next episode in two weeks' time is going to be actually live from ReaperCon. Um, and it will be a, yeah, woot woot. Um, it'll be very exciting. We'll be talking about the games we played there and, of course, interviewing players, talking about some of the play experiences they've had. Um, also have some plans on there to actually interview some people that have never played the game before. So we're going to get some, some first-timers uh, experiences, um, as well as some old hands that have been playing the system for a while. So I'm really looking forward to that. But, uh, again, um, if you guys have any questions uh, for the show as we get back to our regular format here in a few weeks um, and you want to send us some questions about the game itself, you'd like us to take a stab at, please do so. You can email me, uh, gmchris at d20radio.com, gmdave at d20radio.com, and gmphil at d20radio.com. Ooh! There you go, buddy. Happy to do it for you. Um, Yay! <laughs> It's like Christmas. <laughs> it's like Christmas all over again. It's amazing. Um, you can, of course, also call in your questions at the D20 Radio hotline, 262-D20-RADIO. Or you can leave us a liner and tell us why you never listen to the Order 66 podcast, uh, like our good Australian friend did at the start of the show. Um, but it is there. So with that, guys, thank you all for listening. Um, Fish, Phil, any final thoughts before we sign off? Bring it on home, man. Fish? Do it. All right. Well, this is GM Chris wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. And this is GM Phil. See you with a name over your head. This podcast and related website are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, the Walt Disney Corporation, 20th Century Fox, or Fantasy Flight Games. It is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names, pictures, or references to any Star Wars vehicles, characters, or other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited, Fantasy Flight Games, or their respective trademark or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast, including any audio, visual, or textual information, is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast and the Gamer Nation LLC. who doesn't realize that was my old sign-off from the Holocron 2.0 that I did with Fiddleback was, uh, you know, I'll see you with a name over your head. That being that I'd see you in-game, your character with a name over your head. Yes, Phil and, and Phil and Fiddleback used to host a podcast we had devoted to uh, Star Wars The Old Republic. So, a good run there. It was a good run. Good show. And uh, Fiddleback just pointed out that uh, I could borrow his, uh, his sign-off from that show, which was Sabres Off. So, Sabers off. I think that would fit a lot better than uh, fit a lot better than make more sense than I'll see you with a name over your head. <laughs> or you could develop something new, unique, you know. Or I could, I could. You I've could. got a couple weeks. If you were really, if you were I'll, willing I'll to put in that. the freaking effort, I'm just saying. God, I swear, okay. I swear. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll do better. Oh man. <laughs> so, fish? Are they keeping you busy? What at fantasy fight? Yeah. Oh, always. <laughs> uh, just, uh, I, 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 I can't even imagine. Um, 
I absolutely can't even imagine. Uh, oh yeah, uh, my to-do list is always full. Uh, oh, but it's giant fun. whiteboards full of projects. Yep, dude. Um, so okay, uh, now that it's post show, have you guys seen Winter Soldier yet? Hell yes. Oh yeah, it was awesome. Okay, loved it. Okay, so I want to talk about it, and we're gonna get spoilerific here, um, as we like to do. So if you haven't seen Captain America: The Winter Soldier yet. Just turn off your earphones for the next, you know, five, six, ten minutes, however long we take talking about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, so thoughts. What did you guys think of The Winter Soldier? Uh, I thought it was fantastic. Um, very cool approach. Um, it, not exactly what I expected from the next Captain America movie, but I, uh, I was really pleasantly surprised. I know. It, it it really sort of encapsulated a lot of the recent Captain America storylines, uh, and it really grabbed the feel of Cap coming up to speed in the modern world, and how he. But it, how through it all, he is still the big boy scout in the world that really he doesn't fit in with that mindset. So when I got when I left the theater, and I, I literally, I mean, my wife, you know, she was she went to go see this movie because I wanted to go see it. Okay. She was like, "Okay, we'll we'll go watch it. All right, fine." And we walked out of there because she's a she, she's a really harsh film critic too. And she was she walked out of there. She was like, "That was good. That was just a good <laughs> film." And I'm like, "Yeah, it it really was." But like when I walked out, I didn't feel like I was watching like I'd watched a superhero movie. Like no. when I got done with the Avengers, I'm like, "That was an awesome superhero movie." All right. When I got done with Captain America, you know, the first Avenger, I was like, "That was an awesome superhero movie." This this was like I was watching a action spy movie that just happened to have some superheroes in it. Okay, and it was almost almost like it was a well done afterthought. Okay, because well, it was really it was really central around uh, centered around Shield. Yes, and 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 God Redford, oh, bringing Redford in, just, oh. the, the you know all the all the phenomenal action spy movies he's done in his career, it just added to that whole. Mythos and mystic they were going for, and it I, I added a, it added a level of cred that it really didn't need, but it was enhanced by it anyway. Okay, so we're in spoiler territory. So Shield is gone. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I was really surprised by that. I, I haven't been watching Agents of Shield, but you know, it's a pretty pretty new show about Shield, and then yeah. they're like gone. That was the first thing I thought of when the credits rolled. I'm like, what happens to the show now? Uh, I mean, there's a lot they can do with it. And they say, you know, we're going underground, right? Okay, it's it's the, Apparently. you know. And I, I was like, okay, well, okay, they'll take that tech. But still, I was just not expecting that. And no. At all. And that, The whole Hydra infestation. I, wow. I, I mean, uh, you know, when it and when the computer, you know, when the voice started on the computer, I'm like, is that the it is Armin Zola? Oh, my God. Talk about a left field reference. Uh, yeah. Like a, 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 a throwback and a bring back that you never saw coming. And considering they'd spent most of the film stepping away from that and just taking the story full swing into the modern, you know, mindset. And and OK, Cap's dealing with this world now. And yet that old world sort of coming back to haunt him. It was just very it was very masterful. Um so, so Bucky's alive, and the Winter Soldier's out there, and so there were two two end credit scenes, and the one at the very, 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 very end of the credits uh, had him going to the Captain America exhibit at the Smithsonian, and you know, obviously discovering who he is. And what do you think's going to happen next? Are they going to work his character in? Is he just going to be an oddity? Or are they going to bring him back in? And should they bring him back in? I think they i mean we might see him in the future but i don't think we're gonna see him anytime immediately i mean 
they have so many characters now that they really have to focus on a core to keep viewers engaged. Mm. So while I could see revisiting him down the line, I don't think we're going to hear from him anytime like soon, soon, in my opinion. And yet here's what I'm worried about. I am worried by a report that I saw that he's got a nine movie deal with Marvel Studios. Yeah, but that that could be bits. You you don't know. It could be. It could be little bits and and things like that because they have – because Samuel L. Jackson had the same thing. But that included the little short at the end of the original Iron Man, the little short at the the various little token appearances he's made in films. Those have counted towards that. So I think we'll see Winter Soldier again in like a full-blown Captain America 3. What I don't – what I hope they don't do is I hope they don't do Civil War. I don't know. It could be cool maybe it, a long way I think from now. If, if, this, if, if the speed, steam keeps up with Marvel, I have to imagine they're going to do it at a certain point. I mean, it was a great story, man. It it's a really was a great story. But it's really reason- iconic and it's relevant to you know the modern Marvel reader. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so I imagine they'll probably touch on it eventually. But if it has the modern Marvel reader, it needs the modern Marvel stable. It needs the X-Men. It needs Fantastic Four. But that can't happen from a licensing perspective. It needs it needs Spider-Man. Spider-Man they was, the, they, was Sony, one of the linchpin characters of that. Sony owns it, okay? Sony owns yeah. it. They, it's like you're not going to see the X-Men, okay? Because, you know, Fox has them, okay? I mean, it's like it's like they, they can't – Marvel Marvel Studios is not even allowed to use the word mutant in – I know. In their films, okay, in the yep. Avengers films, in any of those I'm, films, I'm going to lament the. I, I've already lamented that that, start, that Spider-Man isn't in there because I love Spider-Man and I love I his wisecracks. Uh, but I, this might be blasphemy, but uh, I actually don't think the X-Men being gone is the worst thing in the world. Um, True. The existence of mutants in the Marvel universe makes it a lot more messy um, and makes yeah. it a lot less relatable to like a normal person. Yeah. Because it's not like, oh, this is a world I live in. No, instead it's this world that's a ton of mutants. And I think that's part of why they made the move in, uh, was it House of M, where Scarlet Witch, like, zaps, like, all the mutants? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, more spoilers. Yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's there. Okay, so now on that note, the first post credit scene, which they had after the initial credit montage, like two minutes after the credits started to, started to roll with all the cool graphics and stuff, was, of course, the the introduction of, of, of Strucker, okay, mm-hmm. uh, of, of the Baron, um, and then you saw Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, like, there, and, you know, this is this is the age of, of what, what did he say, miracles? Miracles. Because he can't say mutants, so he's going to say it's the age of miracles. miracles. Um, <sighs> the Maximovs. So, if they can't bring Magneto in... How are they going to bring those guys in? I mean, I know they're in Age of Ultron, but still. Apparently by uh, Hydra manipulating the powers of that staff Loki got from the, uh, God, what the hell, the, Ch- uh, the Chitari? Yeah. Yeah. And or, Thanos. Well, or Thanos, yeah. Yeah, so. Hmm. You know, they might do experimentation to, to get them around. They might do, uh, they might just glaze over it. Um I I think you can get away with adding characters without like really going into backstory. Mm. And the, exactly exactly that's the thing they were uh, weren't they originally introduced without the Magneto connection? Yeah, and just run from there. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. I mean, if they make them from you know, if they get, oh, whoa, they're they're augmented humans. They were the only ones who survived Hydra's experiments with Loki's staff. All right, get behind that. Yeah. 
yeah, okay, okay. I don't know, but the the film itself was so tight. I just I was very pleased with it. The pacing was good. The editing was good. All the performances were excellent. Um, I actually I get be, be, just because I've had extreme personal experiences with it in my family. The scene where he goes to meet his what's her name oh. his his uh, his now you know Peg when he goes to meet Peggy and oh. and they're having that scene. I'm like, oh, this is touching. And then you realize she's got Alzheimer's, and oh. it was like I was I was bawling like a baby. And yeah. I, I was like, oh, God. And just great performances. Um, they didn't show me what I didn't need to see. It's like, you know, like, you know, with like with Falcon, it's like, well, we got to get our suit. Where is it? It's located in X military base behind this level of security. And they were like, it's not a okay. problem. It's not. OK, it's not a problem. I didn't need to go see them get the suit. OK, no, they just they just got it. And I, I accepted that. And it was good. I mean, I didn't you know, they, they, they took an unnecessary scene and converted it into a five second piece of dialogue. And it was well done. They used a signature ability, and uh... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. Yes, yes, yes. The writers used a yes, yes, yes. Cap Cap used his signature ability, and they just got it done. What I loved about it was the scene after that was just the dialogue. You know, like you're, you're right. I'm not the kind of person who would drop you off this edge, but she is. Knocks Stillman off the edge, and then they like. What about Lisa, the girl from accounting? Yeah, eh, not bad. <laughs> they go right back to trying to set Cap up with a date. It's it was it was epic. I loved the dialogue. It was it was it was very well written. Um, okay, so the trailers that preceded the film. Have you guys seen uh, Guardians of the Galaxy trailer? Uh, yes. Oh yeah. Uba Shaka. <laughs> okay. Uh, since this film was announced, I've been poo pooing it. I mean, horribly. I'm like, I, I, I I've been like, I've been like, really, really, because I want to see Rocket Raccoon on on screen. That's a, that's a brilliant choice, people. I've been, I've been, I've been poo pooing the entire film. I, the whole concept of that was a horrible, horrible idea. Why are you doing this? You have such success, Marvel. Why are you doing this? And then I watched the trailer, and I'm like, um, yeah, that might be good. <laughs> It's really looking like an Edge of the Empire crew. And I, I was, was going to say they, they, they're an RPG group. Yes, yep. yes. And and the, the thing is, it's such a ridiculous concept for a group. And the comic has taken it somewhat seriously. And it, it's it's not a ridiculous comic, okay? But sure. the way they're interpreting it is they really are making fun of it in the best way possible. They're they're poking fun at themselves with the concept, and and that is transitioning to the story. And I think I, I don't know. I'm I'm hopeful. Uh, it, it looked a heck of a lot better than I expected. So I will laugh my ass off if if Vin Diesel's only line throughout the entire film is "I am Groot," because that... <laughs> that's what it's supposed to be. The only thing I've ever seen him say any time I've picked up a Guardian of the Galaxy comic, "I am Groot." I am Groot. And you find out that that's actually some kind of. Um, dumbing down of what he's actually communicating through some sort of psychic pheromone thing that anyone else who can translate it can hear. It just translates as, I am Groot. <laughs> oh, so that's exciting. I don't know. What what, what else is coming out? All right. So, uh, I mean, any other thoughts on Cap uh, or Guardians? Uh, we, we, we can leave. We can call uh, spoilers done on Cap, I think. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And and not uh, make poor Agatheron... Uh, <laughs> upset <laughs> i i am Groot. Groot. um god uh so okay anything else coming out that you guys are super excited about i mean and not just I'm, i mean film yes yes but i mean uh you know any any forthcoming games anything else like that you guys are super excited about 
Oh man, the uh, the new Civ game just got announced. I'm super oh, excited for that. Uh, yeah, Beyond Earth, yeah, uh, sp- spiritual sequel to Alpha Centauri. Yes. Uh, oh man, I'm drooling. Yes. It's probably gonna be really different than Alpha Centauri, so I don't want to like get too much in that mindset. But it sounds awesome for what they said so far. Uh, Civ, honestly, I, I gotta. And there are people out there who will scream, "What?" But Civ bores me. Civ bores me because it's it's Earth history kind of reimagine that 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 really doesn't hook me that doesn't interest me when alpha centauri came out i was all over that damn game and its expansion not that i can remember what the expansion was alien empires or something i don't remember um but no that 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 i'm really looking forward and i when i saw that announcement i was i was drooling i'm like when's this coming out the answer not soon enough (laughs) (laughs) it's i honestly I, i mean like as far as what I expected out of Fire Access, it's a lot sooner than I thought it would be. End of this year? That's true. That is true. Usually when they announce a game, you're like, well, that'll be coming yeah. after the next Star Wars film. Dude, you know, Ar- Arkham Knight. It, yeah, yeah. I, Arkham Knight. I, I, that's probably, I, I'm excited about Arkham Knight. I don't know. I was just, I've been a huge fan of this franchise so far, of the Arkham franchise. So, Oh, yeah. No, that, that franchise is, is, is awesome. Uh, I mean, they've, they're very similar. All the games, but they're all still good. I like, That's kind of what I like about them is that you know you you learn kind of the moves in one, and you've got a a, a jump start on how to advance in the next one. I call it the Assassin's Creed model. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's very similar. Yeah, kind of a slow incremental improvements each game. Each game, and you know, I'm st- yeah, I'm still gonna play it. <laughs> it's, it's it's I'm still gonna play it, and uh, you know, the, the stories have been great. The story's been great. Um, and and that's the other thing for me too is I uh, is I, I I am first and foremost I, I want to play that solo experience and I want to I want to experience the story. It's hard to get that these days. I know it's becoming harder and harder. I mean, you having entire games that are just getting released that are just the, the only you can tell that any first player experience was just a afterthought. It was like no, we we developed it for the multi, for the for the for the multiplayer. And and to be fair, that's what the market's wanting right now. So you know, <sighs> well, look at Titanfall. Doesn't even have a single player mode. Well, yeah, I, yeah, it's all multi. Even the campaign is multiplayer. Yep. That's then, and that's the killer for me. I have no interest in playing Titanfall, which is arguably Call of Duty in mechs. I mean, I play Mech Warrior online right now, and that's that's two mechs slugging it out. You know, and what it boils down to is two mechs slugging it out. One shot will not kill you. But in Titanfall, apparently, from what I hear, you can get that one perfect shot, and if you're good at it. You can take out Max in, in one hit. Yeah, you, you can't one shot him. No, nah. There, there's a there's a plasma railgun that deals a decent amount of damage, but there's no one shot on Max. Oh, okay. But, well, that's good. Yeah. Well, now, I, my fears out the window. I'm a bit of a gamer, bro, but I I I recommend uh, Titanfall. Uh, I mean, yeah. you have to be into kind of arena shooters and stuff, right? But yeah, true. Yeah. <clears throat> well, there was it, a time, there was a time I would, man. But it's like I got a I got a three year old. I don't, I don't, I don't know how, it's like, I don't have time. It's like the only, the only time I get to game is when everyone, everyone in my house is asleep. That's it. That, that's it. Cause if, if, if the kid's asleep, I need to be spending time with my wife. And when she's asleep, then I can game. And you know, at midnight, nobody else is on and I don't like playing with random people. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh. Oh yeah, totally. I, our, uh, the manager of the RPG department, Chris Gerber, has a couple kids, and you know he'll make it through one video game every like two month period, and just like constantly talk about how jealous he is that we blow through video games constantly. <laughs> so, are you are you guys fans of the Bioshock franchise at all? 
I haven't gotten a chance to play him. Oh, God. I, I was a big fan. I mean, Infinite, I think, took some strange thematic jumps and everything, but um, I've really enjoyed all of them. See, Infinite was my favorite. Um, I just I, I love I love the world, but I've been really digging the uh, buried buried sea uh, uh, DLCs that have been released. Um, that the you know the second the second chapter quote unquote just got released and uh, absolutely phenomenal, um, absolutely phenomenal. If you guys haven't played them, um, God. Um, okay, what about tabletop gaming? Um, I got I got Rio Grande uh, gave us uh, a bunch of free swag uh, for the convention that we were not allowed to to, to put into our, our free auction or, uh, or or giveaway. We were we were only allowed to use it for demo purposes. That was part of the agreement, so we said okay. And I got my hands on this board game called Cinque Terra, which is like the five villages in Italian. I haven't okay. played that one. Um, it it's it is the it is so Euro it that, like when you open the box the game should scream at you in German. <laughs> I mean, I, I, if if like when I try to describe the game to people, they're just like, "My God, that's a Euro game." I mean, literally, like, what what's the game about? Okay, well, we're playing competing produce vendors. <laughs> Say what you will. I love Euro games. I do. No, that's that's not a bad thing. I love Euro games. I love them. When when I, I'm not saying this in a in a in a degrading fashion, I I love it. This game is so Euro, and it's you're literally playing competing produce vendors that are buying cubes in farms and then selling them at various villages in order to maximize your profit. I mean, it doesn't get more Euro than that. <laughs> No, I mean it's it's cube pushing to the best degree, but they've got it's got an awesome little mechanic. It's quick to play, um, awesome fiddly bits, um, and if you're if you're looking for a good title, um, you know I often feel like you know Rio Grande when they release their what eighty seven board game titles a year, um, <laughs> uh, in in their release there's there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of chaff you have to you have to fluff through to get to get to the wheat. Um, that it, it's a good title. It's a good title if you haven't played it. Good to know. And just the description reminds me of that uh, sushi 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 chef dice game that you play that you uh, introduced me to back in uh, back oh, when I came. Oh, dude, down. yeah, that's a, a, a like fish cook. I think is what it's called. Fish cook, yeah. Um, and you that's a that's a that's a download. That's a print and play. It's a free download print and play from Cheap Ass Games. Yep. And uh, it's like you know if. You, <laughs> Just go, just get a bunch of dice and the fiddly bits, and you're off. And uh, you know where, where you're competing sushi shops. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's yeah, Euro gaming the best tradition. So I mean, so fish, you like you're typically a Euro game board gamer. That's what you prefer. Oh, I I have a little bit of everything. I, I do really like Euro games though. Any favorite titles? Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I. Uh... In our friend group, we usually lean back on the classics, you know, like Carcassonne, Agricola, um, the the new the new Agricola, oh, the cave one, uh, Caverna. Yes, it's really fun. Yes, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't had a chance to play it yet. I've heard it's awesome, um, but yeah, those those classics, you know, Puerto Rico, uh, you know, uh, Ticket to Ride, you know, all the the real classics. My wife's favorite game of all time is Power Grid. Mm. Um, and if, it's if a you good game. Yet to get a chance to play Power Grid. Oh man, it's it'll wrap your brain around a tree. Um, but my <laughs> my wife is a professional analyst, so I mean, literally the first time she played it, she like she just was got really quiet when she was done, and then she went into the office for two hours, and she came down with with like spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> and, she, and, and she's like, next time we play, I'm gonna have my laptop. I'm like, why? She goes because I need to calculate the return on investment for each purchase. <laughs> 
And, I, and did she? Yes. Um, yes. Wow. She's since been able to move away from the spreadsheet model. I think she's memorized everything, but... Um, <laughs> it's not permanently taken I've, over 1% of her brain. I've never played a game of, of, uh, of Power Grid with my wife that she has failed to win. And I don't care who else is playing with us. She's won every single Power Grid game we have ever played that I've been at a table with her, ever. So she, she's do, doing do it they, right. Yeah. Do they have like power grid tournaments? Oh, I, I hope I quite imagine. At Gen Con. I've never seen a power grid tournament at Gen Con, but I've seen many others. I would love to see and find out if she could just smoke everyone else like a kipper. I don't know. There's some pretty staunch players out there. Um, I mean, she used to be pretty dynamite at some of our, our of, of the classical titles. Like they would, they would, they. I know they have a Carcassonne tournament. They have a Catan tournament, and she yeah, would just yeah. she would smoke us. And then she she's, she's like when first year she went, she entered in some of those tournaments, and she just got spanked. I mean, horribly. Like Ticket to Ride. Like she always wins Ticket to Ride, always. And she didn't get past the preliminary round at that tournament. She just. It, got, it looks like it looks like there is a Power Grid tournament, or at least there was last year at Gen Con twenty thirteen. Oh. Dude, yeah. dude, 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 dude. Um, Does she try? Does she try? Well, I know Dave actually entered in the Ticket to Ride tournament um, uh, like last year or the year prior. And he actually, D- Dave is the only person I've seen be able to beat my wife at Ticket to Ride consistently. Um, mm-hmm. And he actually got to the finals. Nice. Um, or Well, or no, finals or semifinals. Um, but either way, he got really high up there. And he had the game won. The reason he lost is because the gal who won, um, he had her beat in raw point count, it turns out, but her very last turn, she took a gamble, and and because she knew she wasn't going to win, she took a gamble and drew a bunch of tickets, and just happened to be able to complete two of them. Uh-huh. And they were big point value tickets, and so she was able to win. And oh, man. <laughs> crazy stuff, crazy stuff. Oh. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's late where you are, Phil, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's it's quarter past eleven. Okay. Yeah, those of us in the central time zone. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Uh, like I said, if you, if you guys started at nine o'clock your time, I would have been I'd have been dead by now. But no, it's 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 going well. This 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 works. It's all good. <laughs> I'm here. I'm having a good time. Well, talking to the fish. Talking to fish. Andy, anything else you want to expound on? I don't know. Anything you guys want me to expand on? <laughs> Actually, yeah. Now, uh, now that I, I, it was something I came up with during during the show, and I want to try to ask it if we had the chance. Um, the talent trees, because you made some sort of comment going, "Oh, I was really like how the talent trees came out." How do you guys design those things? Because I've done my own fan created supplement to my own careers, and had to create some talent trees for that. And man, I had a devil of a time trying to figure out what goes where and how to link to what and make one change here and like oh no wait that makes this change you know that, that makes this path to this talent a lot easier and I've got to make a change there how do you guys do it um i mean you know it's it's I have, I have there's, there's there's a certain amount of creative process to it actually you know um i actually sit down with a whiteboard and i draw out a grid a four by five grid of the thing and I just start kind of playing. I have a list of the talents I kind of feel like exemplify the specialization and I just kind of start throwing them in in different patterns. And usually what I try to see is try to look for uh patterns of like similar talents of themes I see. Yeah. Um for example, uh 
the uh, saboteur in the Age of Rebellion beta. Um, There's kind of two themes to him uh, or her uh, to is uh, there's kind of the being gritty and resistant and blowing things up. Um, And so, you know, I, I kind of looking at the talents, I saw those two themes and I was like, all right, so how do those interact in this? this kind of a personality. Um, uh, so you kind of, as a saboteur, you have to be gritty. You have to have, be able to take a lot of strain before you're going to actually be working with explosives. So because of that, you'll see in that tree that you have to pass through all of the, uh, the kind of gritty stuff first before you can get to the things that let you blow things up. Um, and so I kind of, it's almost like trying to tell a story with the tree. Um, okay. And for example, you know, in like the Politico, you, you kind of see there's kind of the two sides of the Politico coin. The, you know, on one side you have the scathing tirade. On the other side you have the uh, um, uh, inspiring rhetoric. And so it's, it, it, that, that kind of tells a different story. And two paths to go down. Okay. Sounds like – It's like when we do our Will Isn't That Special segments, Phil, we'll, we'll come up with two shticks, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, that often do it. I mean, yeah, that's, that's kind of where it is. It's like, okay, this grouping of talents versus this grouping of talents and I don't know. But, but like – That's, know, kind, of, that, that's hmm. kind of how I, I sort of designed those, ta- those talent trees that I made myself too. I looked at it when, okay, here's one feel for it. Here's the other feel for it. Where do they interact? And – like where you had a whiteboard, I had a piece of paper with very those small one inch by two inch post-it notes that just had talent written on and kind of stuck it around as, and moved them as needed before I finally put them in paper. Oh, yeah, I like that. It's a little more compact than a giant whiteboard, which I really couldn't carry around in my <laughs> satchel. I actually, I have a little one, uh, an eight, by, an eight and a half by 11 whiteboard that I have at my desk just for designing because I have like an iPad and stuff, but you know, drawing on that is a pain. So the whiteboard is really easy. It's too time-consuming, but doing it on a whiteboard is quick and easy. Yep. Quick and easy. We have uh, – they, they didn't last very long, but in my offices for a little while, we had the smart boards. What's that? You basically you, – you whiteboard whatever you want, and then you press a button, and the whiteboard saves an image of itself, like a GIF, and oh. emails it to anyone you want. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, and they have they have even crazier ones like whiteboards where there's like a projector that goes onto the whiteboard and the computer can interact with the things you've drawn on the whiteboard in interesting ways. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, they're they're pretty cool. They I've seen some college courses taught with them, and if if your teacher is pro- if, the, if the professor or the person using it is properly trained in how to use it, it can be really helpful. But otherwise, it can be kind of a pain if you don't know how to use it properly. <laughs> kind of like PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> much like PowerPoint. Yeah, much like PowerPoint. Dude, good question. Uh, all right, guys. Well, it is late. <laughs> I've got to encode the show. Any final thoughts before we sign off? Sign off, sign off. Uh, I owe you a drink at Gen Con? Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that I'll have like a bunch of you, if possible, I'd have a bunch of you guys from Fantasy Flight lined up. <laughs> yeah, we probably would. We we can definitely go out for a drink. Thank you, shot. Thank you, shot. Thank you, shot. Thank you, shot. <laughs> Phil, Phil, <laughs> Phil owes many of you drinks. Um, yes, yes. As do I. <laughs> well, Andy, man, thank you so much for being on with us. Really do appreciate it, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Uh, I hope I wasn't uh, too ranty with you guys. Uh, a are lot of these kidding? topics are things we talk about a lot at work. So, you know, you kind of – I've had a lot of practice discussing these topics. But... Oh, we, we've had Jay on the show multiple times. We're used to rant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Jay loves a good rant. He loves a good rant. He, he loves a good rant. All right, guys. Well, uh, <laughs> this is GM Chris saying good night and good luck. See you.